0: Every little thing you think that you need, every little thing you think that you need, every little
1: thing that's just feeding your greed, oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it.
2: Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist's Private Podcast we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. Of course, we're here with Alabama. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman what is here. Is? Welcome back. <laughs> uh, we got the rest of our You're team in back. the studio here as well. Jordan, no more. Professor Sean, Danny, unknown, of course, joining us on the Patreon live stream today. You've got Emma, the Immigrant Podcast. Sean, social Jess, who is getting ready to go out on maternity leave for a while. Yeah, I'm
3: so excited for her. It's wild.
2: Oh, great time. Yeah, congrats to Jess. You can actually just go to the show notes. You can tweet her or Instagram her and. Say congratulations. By the time this episode comes out, she will have already had her new child. The baby. Baby. The baby. That sounds like a horror film. I know, (laughs) like Jesse's baby. The baby.
1: It can kind of be like a mixture between (laughs) Rosemary's baby and Jesse's girl. Yeah.
2: Jesse's baby. (laughs) (laughs) Big shout out to our Patreon supporters. Thank you for keeping our podcast 100% advertisement free because advertisements suck. Yeah, they do. Let's get to our callers, y'all. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a private podcast subscriber, a Patreon subscriber, so that we can prioritize your questions. Our first question today is from Nicole.
3: This is Nicole from North Carolina. So I've worked through my values. And so now I'm generally spending money on experiences versus stuff, but I'm still dealing with lifestyle inflation. So I doubled my income about a year ago. And of course, my spending has followed suit. Every month, I have a $1,000 that goes towards my savings and my debt. And that's great, but I know that more could be going towards that. So I recently moved. I'm in a city that I love and I love to go out and explore But I had to take it down a notch and start cooking at home. Either way, I know what I'm, you know, I'm I'm taking the right steps towards my goals, but are there any tips you can offer?
2: Lifestyle inflation is an interesting concept, right? Mm. Because it's self imposed inflation Mm. in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And so, Nicole, I'll I'll tell you this that a rich person with poor spending habits Mm. is still broke. And now, I know this firsthand. Ryan knows this firsthand from our corporate days. We made really good money. A couple hundred thousand dollars a year in Dayton, Ohio, in the oddies. We live like kings. Well, maybe princesses. (laughs) (laughs) but we lived well off of
4: 200 grand a year in ohio
2: well no we didn't that's the problem we didn't live well at all because we were overspending we Mm. were spending beyond our limits and so when ryan goes out and gives a talk and and says minimalism is really just living within your means ism Mm. when you think about it that way it's about intentionally using whatever resources you have. And that's where Nicole is. That's why, Nicole, I want to applaud you for asking this question because I'm not the type of person to give prescriptions. You all know this. But with something that's mathematical, like budgeting, I think part of it is understanding the math behind this. Mm. How much money do I make versus how much money am I spending? And then there's not just the mathematical component, the, the yeah. um, component that says... Here are the figures, but there's also the feelings that we have around money. And that is what causes us to spend outside of our budget. So there's no prescription that will change your feelings. You need to have a deeper understanding of what is causing you to constantly inflate your lifestyle. I'll give you two or three examples here. The first one is certainly advertisers. That's why when we start this podcast and we say advertisements suck, it's because quite often there are large corporate entities or just other entities who have their best interest in mind and don't have your best interest in mind. The second thing I'll say here is, oh, you know what? We often tell ourselves these stories about I'm missing out if I cook at home. But to me, cooking at home is one of the greatest privileges I have because now I know I don't have all the excess seed oils or preservatives or Mm. junk that may be going into the food at a restaurant because I can control more variables at home. And so that's really what we're talking about here is controlling the variables that we can control. It sounds to me like Nicole's already accepted the things that she cannot control. Yes, of course, there's gonna be regular real inflation, Good luck trying to turn down real inflation. But the most inflation we, we experience in our, in our lives has to do with our overspending, our compulsive spending, our compulsory spending, our impulse spending. Oh, I saw that thing, so I should buy it right now. One last story for you. I was with, I was with my daughter a few days ago and we were walking through, there was this, uh, this beautiful festival. And we were walking and there was this crystal store that she wanted to walk into. And I'm like, okay, we can walk in there for sure. And we walked in there and she liked all the little shiny crystals and everything. And then all of a sudden she saw this ring and it just happened to be her size. And she puts the ring on and it fits perfectly. And she's... Oh, it's so beautiful. I really, really, really want it. I know. know She felt the power of the
4: crystals.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And she goes, I know. I said, I wouldn't buy anything before we came in here, but I really, really want it. I said, okay. Would you be willing to wait a day and see if you still want it tomorrow? And if you still want it tomorrow, we can come back. We'll spend half your money, half my money on it because she started her own business recently. She Mm. started a dog walking business at age nine. Nice. It's called Paul's, by the way. And uh, she's now taking on clients and actually earning her own money, $5 per dog walk. And so she's made over a hundred bucks so far. And so she's like trying to figure out what to do with this money. And Mm. I said, okay, I'll pay for half. You pay for half. If you just remind me a day from now. Well, that was two weeks ago and she hasn't mentioned it once, <laughs> wow! And why is that? Because she put some distance between the impulse mm. and the purchase itself. Ryan and I, we created this the thirty thirty rule, or called it's also called, called the wait for it rule. If something costs more than thirty dollars, we give ourselves thirty hours to make that purchase. It gives you that time to make a decision because otherwise, impulse will take over. And it will ruin your life. It will cause that inflation that otherwise wouldn't be there. You just yeah. to
4: spend money like a minimalist.
2: Spend less money than what you
4: make. Boom, podcast over. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Shut it down.
4: Ding, Drop the mic. Ding, ding. But no, I mean, it's, it is it, it is a simple equation, but as we know, simple is not easy. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, that's what Nicole trying to figure out here. How does she spend less than what she makes? Um, I, I love what you talked about, uh, Millie, about uh, looking at it as a privilege to like cook at home. Because um, I know for you and for Mariah, mm-hmm. eating out actually is a detriment to, to her health. It's a detriment to your health sometimes. For sure. Um, I mean, we went to a Mexican place. Yeah. And great food. Awesome food. She got f- steak fajitas with like no, no tortillas. You know, I think she, maybe she had like a bite of rice and beans. I mean, it was all for all intents and purposes, like real whole food. There wasn't anything processed there. And it killed her. And I yeah. was like, "Oh, it's the seed oils. I mean, almost certainly, probably, yeah." But I'm like, "Oh, we can't. I'm like, we can't eat out anymore. Like, we have to cook at home." Yeah. Um. So, yeah, we have found ways to like find joy in cooking. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, you know, Nicole's problem here. This is a good problem to have. It's you know, how does she? She doubled her income, but yeah. how does she spend like a minimalist? It just goes back to spending less money than what you make. And how do you do that? You got to start with a budget. Like that's 100 percent sure. Yeah. And I used to have um some friends and like mentoring clients. Uh, and you know, I would, I would, uh, they would talk about very similar things that Nicole was talking about. And I'm like, well, do you have a budget? And, um, a couple of times I heard a budget, like, I don't need a budget to know I'm poor. Mm. Like I'm poor, but I'm like, if you don't know how poor you are though, like you're you're just gonna keep spinning your wheels, then. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, like I use uh, Mariah, and I use every dollar. That thing is awesome. It's funny because there's like a, and uh, I don't know how Rams is gonna feel about this, how the Ramsey team is gonna feel about this, but the pro version mm-hmm. creates less friction mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. to put
4: um, all your purchases into mm-hmm. like the different categories. Yeah. Where like the free version, it creates so much more friction because you got to pull your phone out and like log it in every time. You got to like. Uh, you know, I, I go to my um accounts and I'm like, okay, like I gotta you know keep track of everything. Ryan's talk about the Every Dollar app. Yeah, the, the Every Dollar man. app. Yeah, yeah. I did say I did say we use Every Dollar, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, there's like a free version and a pro version. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it. Like it is, it is. Mariah and I used to use a spreadsheet until we found out about that. There's there's a couple other budgeting apps out there yeah. too, but yeah, um, that was a freaking game changer, especially when we moved to LA because in Montana. Mariah and I were paying off debt. So we were using a budget. We finally got debt free and it was awesome. Uh, And then I'm like, oh, we don't need a budget anymore. Like, we'll just, you know, kind of go about it willy nilly. And then we moved to LA. I'm like, oh no, like we
2: have to have a budget. (laughs) (laughs) Like this is not working. And and the funny thing about that is, Ryan, you and I both grew up really poor. And at some points, like, significantly poorer than the people around us even. Mm-hmm. And we would have really benefited the most at that time. 100%. From a budget, right? 100%. Yes. And I can tell you that when I left the corporate world, took a 90% pay cut, the only way I was able to do that was to put together a budget. I made $23,000 in 2011. Mm-hmm. And the only way that I was able to survive on that was to have a budget because that budget helped me identify what was non-essential, what I could cut out Mm -hmm. so that I could live this life and I would no longer have to be tethered to some idealized lifestyle. Yeah. Nicole, congratulations
1: on doubling your income. Wow. (laughs) That doesn't just happen. You did something. You did something. You stepped up. You took some risk. Uh, you made some improvements. So congratulations on that. That's, that's really cool. What I would say is that budgeting isn't just for responsibilities. It's also for recreation. You can not only plan ahead or think ahead for responsibilities like paying bills, but you can also think ahead for play and adventure and the things that you like to do for fun. Sometimes we associate preparation with all the boring, you know, highly responsible stuff because that's what they make us do in school, right? If it's something that someone else is making you do, you gotta plan ahead, you gotta write everything down. And so we assume that unless it's absolutely spontaneous in every possible way, it can never be fun, but you can still have fun and think ahead about what the boundaries and parameters are. And so what I would suggest is just like you have a budget for all of the bills, for how much you wanna save and how much debt you wanna reduce, I would do the same thing with the fun that you want to have. Apply what I call the casino technique. Nothing wrong with saying I'm going to go in the casino and play around with some of my money for fun, but make your decision out of the heat of the moment. Don't wait till you get in the middle of a game of poker to start making a decision about how much you're okay with spending. Decide before you go into the casino. And it's the same thing as you go into your week. How much do you want to spend How much do you feel good about spending on
2: recreation before you're in the middle of doing all the fun things and making your plans? That's all I'll say. Yeah. Here's one final practical thing for you, Nicole. We have a financial freedom ebook that you can download on our website. If you go to theminimalists.com, click on resources at the top, there's a financial freedom. And it's the five steps that Ryan and I took to develop a budget to get out of debt and to stay out of debt which is one of the most important things because I had gotten out of debt before in my early twenties and then got right back into it. Like, ah, what's one extra credit card. And then all of a sudden you have 14 credit cards. You get used to those debt payments,
4: man. And as soon as you don't have any debt payments, you're instead of, and I was there, you don't think about like, oh, now I could save this money. Mm -hmm. How much was I paying each month on those credit cards? 500 bucks, 200, but whatever it is, instead of me going like, oh, that's going to go into my retirement. It was like, oh, now I can afford more debt, Mm -hmm. which if, to say I can afford debt is a, it's it's kind of an oxymoron, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, here's one more thing. While you're over there on that resource page, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of wallpapers you can download. Our minimalist wallpapers. One of them is the five questions to ask before buying, and one of those questions is: Is this the best use of that money? Mm-hmm. And what Ryan just illuminated there is: Yes, maybe you can afford a three hundred dollar debt payment, but is that the best use of that four hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, thousand dollars a month? Yeah. And if not, it's okay to say no to that thing so you can say yes, because money is a finite resource. Even if you're wealthy, your money is limited, right? And so is this the best use of that money for you at this time? And that wallpaper, have it on your phone or your computer before you shop on Amazon or whatever, just having those five questions there and going through it real quick, That's an exercise in avoiding impulse. You can find those over at theminimalists.com. Just click the resources tab there at the top. On the private podcast coming up, we also have another question about inflation, a bunch of other questions as well. Our next question is from Alexa.
3: I'm Alexa from Philadelphia. Why do I only have the motivation to clean, declutter, organize, et cetera, during my workday, but not on my days off? I find that while I'm working from home, sometimes I want to stop work and do those chores, but I can't. I'm stressed out by the mess and I can't focus on work with all the clutter around me. And at the end of the workday, I'm too tired and demotivated by it being dark out to do it then. And by the time the weekend comes, I have no energy to tackle what I wanted to get done all week. I feel like this cycle repeats every week and it really bothers me and I have no time or energy to clean.
4: This sounds like my ADD self. (laughs) It's like whatever I have in front of me, I want to do something else. And then I'll go do something else. And then I regret not
2: doing the thing that was in front of me. And so I feel Alexa's pain here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also feel her pain from a different perspective. This is my OCD self (laughs) coming out. Right. And so here's what I recognize in Alexa's question. A lot of trivialities like doing the laundry, doing the dishes, mopping the floor, cleaning the yard, trivialities are compelling only when one's life is void of meaningful experiences. And so if you have something that's really compelling in front of you, I'll, I'll give you an example, Ryan. One of the most compelling things to you is surfing right now, right? Sure. It's really compelling. And when you're on that surfboard, you're not like, i you know what? I need to go fold the laundry. Like, it doesn't (laughs) even.
4: I mean, I don't spend a whole lot of time on the surfboard actually when I'm in the ocean, but (laughs) I get what you're saying. (laughs) When I'm in that ocean, I'm not like, I gotta go do laundry. Right. I just, I'm only clarifying this because I don't want people to like think I'm a surfer. I I practice surfing is is my version of (laughs) surfing. But but you're right, man. You're out there in the waves, man. Like you're getting grounded with that salt water. It's like, it's so compelling. It's so amazing Mm -hmm. that like, yeah, I'm not thinking about like, oh, did I leave my stove on or I haven't done the dishes lately. Yeah, you're absolutely right.
2: And writing is very similar to me, Mm -hmm. although there's this extra component. I'm sure you experience this with surfing to some extent is as soon as I start the writing Mm -hmm. and I get into that flow state after about 20, 22 minutes, it is so compelling that I, I don't want to do anything else. I just want to be there with the words, writing, playing with them, manipulating the words, changing them. Something is growing out of this blank page and this cursor just flashing on the page. It's amazing. But sometimes before I start doing it, my intellectual brain, not the not, not the, my heart, which tells me like, oh yeah, you're focused on this writing, but my intellectual brain does what? It's like, oh, but you have to do the dishes still. Or, oh, there's 15 things that you must do before you start writing. Mm -hmm. In my writing class, How to Write Better, uh, the thing that I talk to students about is I have one rule to start writing now. I used to have about 15 where it was like, okay, you have to fold the laundry. You have to complete the dishes. You have to sweep the floor. You you have to do all these things. And Mm -hmm. the problem with doing all these things, TK, is that I would do 12 of them, but there were still three more, th- always three more things yeah. to do. And so there was always an excuse to indulge in some sort of triviality. Mm. That prevented me from doing the thing that was most meaningful to me. So my rule now was eliminate the trivialities. My one rule for writing now is I have to wake up. And that's just because I haven't figured out how to write in my sleep yet. (laughs) And so as as, (laughs) as soon as I wake up, if I really have to pee, then I'm more compelled by that. I'll go do that. If I am thirsty, I'll drink water. But what are the most compelling things? The writing is the most compelling thing. Those other things can wait for the days off, whatever. But that's the reason. If you are really compelled by your work, then these trivialities would be less compelling to you. But because you're not, on your days off, you're like, oh, I'm so compelled by all these other things I want to do on my days off. I -hmm. I, I want to spend time with my friends. I want to go out. I want to go see a movie. I got this yoga class. Those things are compelling to you. And if you found those compelling things, oh, wow, there's a sound bath. There's a concert. There's a bar where my friends are meeting. Those are compelling. So you do those instead of the trivialities. But if you can find a way to either A, make the trivialities more compelling than those things, unlikely, or B, find work that is more compelling than the trivialities, then they won't be in the way anymore. Mm. One thing that, that came up
1: is, is she mentioned that some of this organization stuff, she does do it, right? But it's, it's during work time when she's working from home. I think that's interesting because it, it could be evidence that um, these things aren't trivialities, but they are preconditions that need to be established in order for her to focus on other things. And mm. here's what I mean by that. Like, let's say every time I sit down to read, I find myself getting agitated about the dishes needing to be done or the laundry needing to be done. And, and, I, and I get up and I go do that and I can't concentrate on my book until those things are done. That could mean... Reading isn't as compelling as I think it is because I'm easily distracted from it, but it also could mean that I'm the type of person who needs to have certain things organized in order to be free to enjoy reading, right? And so it could be the case that the problem here is a lack of purposeful activity. You know, it, it, you know, a lot of times we, we look at certain things like discipline, organization, decluttering as a, you know, like through a moral lens. You do these things because they're right. You don't do these things because they're right. You do these things because they create space in your life for things that make you come alive. And so maybe there's an opportunity for you to find more things like on the weekend and so on that make you come alive so that the organization, the process of decluttering and all of that takes on a new meaning for you because right mm. now it seems like the meaningfulness of it only comes up when you've got something to do and maybe having something to do sort of triggers you in a positive way and makes you say, hey, in order to, in order to do my best work, I got to have this stuff in the background taken care of.
4: Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to those trivialities, I mean, it feels like work because it is work. No mm. one likes to mop the floor besides Melbourne. no one likes to do the ironing except milburn no i mean for most people like these trivial things are very they're boring they it's looked at as work um i know for me like there's this there's this like voice inside of me that hates to feel like i have to do something and it's probably from my childhood being told what to do and you know whatever it is and sometimes like i feel like you know instead of battling with my parents i'm like battling with myself like don't tell me what to do. Uh, yeah. You should hear the conversations I have with myself. <laughs> but I mean, ultimately it's like, I look at it and I'm like, okay, look like life is, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of life that is just trivial. And like, we have to do some of these things. And uh, I mean, for me, because I am like super ADD, it really comes down to scheduling, making, making the time for it, being very deliberate with it. Um, I, I have uh, Mariah kind of help me um, be account. Uh, help her hold me accountable or she helps me, whatever she helps me be accountable, base, basically, and uh, yeah, it's it, it works really, really well in the sense that I've got a time set aside, and I've got like a a friend, uh, a, a wife who is there to be like, hey, Ryan, you uh, you asked me to remind you about this, and um, I really appreciate that. I mean, but she doesn't do it in a judgmental exactly. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah of I,
2: I think that's really the key there because she's not judging you; she's supporting you. Mm-hmm. It's not even she because she's not trying to help you drag you into where. She is right and you are wrong. It's not about that. It's about, hey, Mariah, I need some help here. Would you be willing to support me in this? Yeah. And of course, yes. And she'll do it in a way that doesn't seem judgmental. Because if she were to come judge you, hey, why didn't you take out the trash, Ryan? (laughs) Idiot. You'd be like, what the hell is going on here, right? Do you have have her house bugged? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but it's just cameras. There's no sound. Oh, okay, perfect. (laughs) Anyway, so I want to talk about two more things with respect to this question. One is Ryan was talking about scheduling and I schedule something every night that has to do with the triviality. So let's get to that in a second. I call it the setting the stage rule. And we'll we'll talk about that, but I also want to talk about trivialities. When I say something is a triviality, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. No. It's sand. You've seen that experiment where the professor like fills up the jar with rocks and then pebbles and then sand. If you try to fill it up the opposite way, what happens? So let's say, we'll just do this as a quick experiment real quick for the private podcast listeners. So you have a jar and next to the jar, you have a pile of sand, you have some big rocks and you have some pebbles. Well, if you try to fill it with the sand first, the trivialities, there's no room for the big rocks, the important things, Mm -hmm. right? But if you put the big rocks in first, the pebbles in second. So the pebbles will be the things that you find to be mildly compelling that are necessary in your life. But the important big things, the writing, the uh, volunteering, whatever it is, the things that that really that they really get your heart going. Oh, those are the big things we got to put mm. in first. But if we just put the trivialities in first, we make no room for the big important things. Now, I will say this about setting the stage. So every night, Bex and I take five to 15 minutes to set the stage in our home. Ella has gone to bed. And now all of a sudden, we've got a few dishes maybe left in the sink from dinner that we made together, or there's a blanket out on the couch or the pillows in a weird place, or Ella left something in the hallway, strangely, or we have a pair of shoes that's over here. And we take five minutes up to 15 minutes every night, to deal with the trivialities because it doesn't require a lot of brain power because I don't have a lot of brain power left at the end of the day, but I have just enough to deal with some of these trivialities. I can run the dust mop really quick. I can put away the dishes. That way the next morning, I don't have to use my brain power to deal with those things. And I can start the day by putting those big rocks into the, into the glass jar. We have a question here from Yosh. Yosh.
5: My name is Joost. I'm from the Netherlands. How do you start minimalism when you are dealing with acquired brain injury? Minimalism will help reduce the amount of stimulus you have to process. But removing the clutter requires a lot of energy when you have little because of the brain injury.
2: What a deep question. What I've learned over the last 12 years or so is that clutter is sort of a car crash for our psychological (laughs) well-being. When we have a lot of external clutter, it's generally a result of what's going on up here. I have a lot of mental clutter. The mind is always moving and moving and moving. Quite often I try to pacify it. How? By buying something to quite literally pacify myself. And I say literally because you think of a baby. We pacify babies, right? Right. And we pretend that we're better than that, right? But of course not. We're pacifying ourselves with new cars, new clothes, new electronics, new purchases, new debt, new overwhelm, new stress, new career anxieties. We have all this newness, all these new forms of clutter that starts with that physical clutter. And so... mm, I get that it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming for everyone, but especially if you have some sort of brain injury, it could certainly be overwhelming. And I'll tell you how I started because it was totally overwhelming for me. This is before the 30-day minimalism game, before Ryan's packing party. I started with one thing a day. I asked myself, what would happen if you got rid of one item, just one item a day for 30 days? Well, it turns out I got rid of way more than 30 items in 30 days. Yeah. Well, why is that? Because I wasn't overwhelmed. Everyone can get rid of one thing today. So, Yost, if it's about getting rid of things, clearing the clutter, the physical clutter, so that you can deal with the mental clutter that it is creating in your life, maybe it's about one thing. And I started this back in 2010 when I started Letting Go. I wrote about it in 2012, 2012 one thing a day. Eventually that turned into the 30-day minimalism game. And so you yeah. can really allow it to ramp up to more things, but you don't have to get overwhelmed by it. What would happen if you got rid of one yeah. thing today? What kind of mental clutter would that remove from your life?
4: Yeah. I mean, we could even take it a step back and look at, you know, what is minimalism? I mean, minimalism is the deliberate use of, use of your resources. So, you know i i understand that yosh wants to start with the things i mean that's what we want to do a lot of times with minimalism we want to start with the clutter but sometimes we got to hold off on that clutter for a second um sometimes we got to look at that that internal clutter and deal with a little bit of that so if you're having a hard time with the physical items of minimalism like what else what other resources do you have you got your time you got your attention you've got your um uh, I mean, of course, you have your money, um, which is funny because like that's the least of the important resources. It's an important resource, mm-hmm. but like I would say, time and attention by far like way more important than what we do with our money. Yeah, your energy, your skills. Yeah, exactly. So the question is, you know, what can you do with these resources that you're not being deliberate with right now? And maybe there's something you can do once a day. Maybe it doesn't include getting rid of your sentimental items or what your hoard of stuff. Maybe it's um, meditating for a minute a day. Maybe it's, you know, reading, reading a book, maybe just drawing a picture, but just finding something to like get that momentum built. Like that's really how minimalism yeah. um, can take effect in your life. I mean, the packing party is so extreme, mm-hmm. but like I, I'm an extreme person. Yes. So for me, the packing party was a great idea. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, I live by myself. This is very easy for me to do. I don't have a wife and three kids to pack up all their stuff. I can just do it all myself. And like, Invite Josh over, call it a party, and it'll be a blast. <laughs> and it was a blast. We had a great time. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that packing party, I just didn't realize how that was just the beginning. I didn't realize that the momentum that would get uh, built just from doing that one experiment. But I, I would posit that there's experiments that you could do every single day, little small ones that yeah. can get that momentum built.
2: You know, the packing party is a great example. In fact, later on on the private podcast here... Uh, during the home tour portion, we're going to talk about something that I'm calling the reverse packing party. We're also <laughs> referring to it as the out in the open rule. And it was inspired by your packing party, but it's sort of done in reverse. So we'll talk about that a bit. Yeah. Is there anything, TK, that you would like to say to Yoast? Yes, I mean, uh,
1: to synthesize what both of you just said, take a minimalist approach to introducing minimalist values. The maximalist approach is when you say, I just watched the documentary. I just read the book. Mm. So I'm going to just legalistically dump everything that I have. Or, you know, I'm going to wait until I have this day of spring cleaning where I've got four to five hours and then I'm going to do a massive overhaul. And if that works for you, if that inspires you, go for it. But that doesn't work for everyone. The minimalist approach is when you say, bit by bit, I'm going to simplify my life And the cool thing about taking the one day at a time approach Josh talked about or the one item at a time approach is that when you get rid of one thing, it creates the space for you to reflect more clear headedly about the other things that you have. It's kind of like a game of Bananagrams where you've got all these pieces and you got to get rid of the pieces by making words out of the pieces that you have. Each time you get rid of one piece, it makes it easier to figure out how you should use the other pieces. And now getting rid of the second one becomes easier. So the value of getting rid of one piece adds to the ease with which you can get rid of future pieces. And that Mm -hmm. process builds on itself. And it's the same thing with simplifying your life. If you take one day at a time, it makes it easier for you to move in that direction that you want.
4: Yeah. I I, uh, was walking the other day at this, um, I was upstate New York visiting some family there's this little like lagoon park thing next to my aunt's place. Nice, beautiful walk. It's fall upstate New York. And I have to like talk myself out of moving out there like every single time. I got to remember like how bad the winters are. Winters are okay if if there's good mountains to go snowboarding on. But Mm -hmm. if it's just cold, there are some decent mountains. But like once you've had Montana mountains, like no offense to any East Coast mountains. (laughs) But they're not really mountains out that way. But anyway. I'm offended um, on behalf of the East Coast mountains. (laughs) (laughs) So... I uh, was walking with Mariah and we pass um, three people walking husband and wife. And then it was one of their mother. I don't know who's, but we, we walk a little bit past them and the, the mom turns around and she goes, Hey, were you in a movie? <laughs> I'm like, no, I thought I was in a documentary. And then, uh, the, 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 the wife was like, Oh, you're one of the minimalists. I'm like, yeah. And, uh, you know, they're like, come back here and talk to us. I was like, all right, you know, you know me, Mr. Expert. I'm like, all right, cool. Mm -hmm. So, um, they were great huggers. You know, we had a great conversation and then, uh, you know, we talked five, 10 minutes, we're wrapping it up. And the husband looks at me as I'm kind of walking away and he's like, all right, man, I'm going to go home and just start getting rid of everything, man. (laughs) And it's, you know, I don't ever not like hearing that. Um, first off, I'm, I'm always like, I don't know whether to say you're welcome or I'm sorry, but have fun with, you know, getting rid of everything. (laughs) But it's almost like, um, the story of the stuff is, that's what stands out, but there's so much nuance like leading up to that and why it led up to that and what getting rid of the stuff did, um, that, um, you know, it's, there's a piece of me where I'm like, maybe you don't want to start with this stuff, you know, like to go home and get rid of everything. Like I hear what you're saying, um, but I'd bet you
2: Josh $1 that they probably didn't go home and get rid of everything. Cause it's overwhelming and it's a lot of work. I think it starts with the stuff, but then it permeates to all these other areas and reverberates back to the stuff. Mm, so yeah. what I mean by that is as you start clearing the excess, cause we all know that the average person according to the Los Angeles Times, has 300,000 items in their home. And it's a lot of stuff. So you start dealing with that and then you start looking at the internal clutter, the emotional clutter, the career clutter, the psychological clutter, the relationship clutter, Mm -hmm. the advertisement clutter. We got a lot of clutter in our lives. We start clearing that and that begins to reverberate back and we look at our stuff again in a different light. Mm -hmm. And the things that I thought added value don't actually add value. But then I get rid of more stuff and then I start, uh uh-oh, Maybe I actually need to bring some new stuff into my life. Mm. And that's okay, too. I'm not an ascetic. I want things that add value to my life. And I want to let go of the things that are in the way. Yes, don't start
1: with the clutter. Start with what you want your life to be about. And decluttering just
4: is about making room for that, right? That's That's so good. I mean, because talking about finances, you have to start with that budget. It's Mm. like, how do you want your budget to look? Um. Yeah. And it's taking yeah. that approach with minimalism. It's a great start. But just to dive into it and be like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to spend less money this month. Like it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Right. I mean, you might succeed, but it's going to work much better if you have a
2: foundation to
4: build off. That's of. right. Yeah. yeah.
2: We got some questions from social media. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at The Minimalists. Miriam has a question for us.
3: With the cost of everything going up lately, it's getting harder for me to declutter items like clothes because I worry I won't be able to afford to replace them in the future. How do I get over that fear?
2: We're really talking about the fear of missing out. But this is one of those weird fears. I'm afraid of missing the thing that I wouldn't miss. Mm. And so I would say, right? Because she's like, I want to get rid of this thing. I know I wouldn't really miss it. But because of inflation, I might miss it later. Right? This is... The ultimate sort of just in case. And mm. so Ryan and I have the 2020 rule in the minimalist rule book, which you can download for free, the minimalists.com/slash rulebook. And the 2020 rule or just in case rule just says, hey, if you really miss the thing, like you could have gotten some value from it. You can replace it. Less than $20, less than 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's okay. The cool thing about the rule is you never end up actually using it. Yeah. We've used it five or six times over the last decade. And so What I'll say to you, Miriam, is you won't miss the missing things that you don't like. You don't like these things. So if you don't like it, it's okay to get rid of it. If you don't like it, you're not going to miss it. Now, why would you actually miss it? Because you tell yourself a story that I should miss it. Mm -hmm. Or you tell yourself a story that, oh, the memories are in that thing. But of course, the memories aren't in the thing. The memories are inside you. And so if you really feel like you'll lose those memories, simply take a photo of the thing and then let the thing go, you still have the trigger for those memories in the future. Yeah, that's right on, man. You know, I, I would say don't simplify because
1: you feel like it would be easy to replace. Simplify because of what you know you can do with that new space. And, you know, the the freedom that you get from letting things go, It's it's a freedom that you don't get to experience until you actually let things go. There are some things in life, like some superpowers, some benefits that you don't get to have if you remain at the level of hypothetical consideration, right? Like you've got to let it go. And when you let it go, there's an openness there. There's a possibility there. And now you can do something with it. And that's why you let things go because of what it opens you up to in your life. And you know what? You might miss it. But sometimes I think we overemphasize the power of missing something you know, I miss things from my past. So there are some days where I miss experiences of childhood. So maybe you will miss it. And that's okay. Yeah. But missing something isn't incompatible with letting it go because you know that the next stage of life you want to move to mm-hmm. is what's best for you right now. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I'm just rereading like this last sentence. Um, I worry I won't be able to afford to replace them in the future. Uh, you should never let go of something that you're planning on replacing. Well, I shouldn't say never, but I mean, it, it wouldn't make, like I would personally, um, it would have to be an exception to the rule, but like, I probably wouldn't ever let something go knowing that like, I'm going to need that in the future. I might have, um, it was I, far
2: enough away.
4: Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, I mean, and, and you know what, that goes to the boundaries that we set up and that's, that's what we talk about in, you know, in our podcast. The majority of the time is like, hey, what, what are my boundaries? What are TK's boundaries? What are Josh's boundaries? They're all a little bit different. Um, but the question is, is, what boundaries do you have set up for, your, for yourself, Miriam? Um, minimalism is about balancing. Hmm. If you, you can't afford to let go of everything. You cannot afford to hold on to everything. And it's, it's not that binary choice. It's about finding that balance. And minimalism can help you find that balance. So, Miriam, how do you take the minimalist approach to this question? A, what are your boundaries? What do you truly value?
2: I mean, those, those are two great places to start. Yeah, and the, the beginning part of her question had to do with inflation. So I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about inflation because that's been certainly something that is affecting all of us. Oh, yeah. In fact, my added value today is a paper towel dispenser. I'll get to that later during the added value segment. But I noticed when I when I looked it up recently, so I get a picture for Jordan so he could feature it on the video version of the, the podcast. The price of it has gone up. I ordered this, what, three months, four, five months ago? I, and it's probably almost doubled in five months. Wow. And I noticed with uh, these tables that we have here, uh, the production tables, they're from Ikea and i looked them up recently cuz we had to make some modifications to it and the price of those had gone up from like 79 bucks to 109 bucks or yeah. something wow. now we bought them at a lower price and so yes inflation is virtually inevitable it's outside of your control and so we will sometimes talk about changing the controllables working on the controllables understanding the controllables mm-hmm adjusting for the controllables but inflation is one of those things that i can't control i can only control how i react to it yeah that's right and and you're going to have cycles of this all throughout your life right um
1: you're 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 going to have periods of time where things that are going on economically make us a little afraid to spend money and you're going to have times where it incentivizes us to get out there and invest more aggressively those aren't things that you can predict those aren't things you can control But what you can control is all the things that Ryan talked about, making a clear assessment of, hey, what do I want? What's my why? What are the boundaries that are going to protect that why? And then you get rid of things, not because you feel like you have to, but because you truly have no intention, no place for them to fit in how you're going to use them.
4: Yeah. I I just had this like random thought and help me unpack this, or maybe I'm just crazy. But we spent 79 bucks on that. Okay. Let's say that we had to... Uh, sell it because we didn't need it anymore and we only got $20 for it I mean in our mind we're like oh man we just lost you know $59.99 whatever that works out to be um, however well first off we wouldn't think that because of the sunk cost but that's how I used to think oh mm-hmm. I just lost $59.99 um, but mm-hmm. you talked about it going up in price mm-hmm. we don't look I don't look at it and think we just made $30.
2: (laughs) That thing's $110 that we just made $30 on that. Right. Because we do now have more perceived value mm -hmm. technically, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, wow. Here's the opposite of that though, right? We often think I should buy this because something's on sale. I was at the Design Within Reach outlet last weekend with Bex. And we were looking at this chair. And the salesperson comes over and says, well, actually, these chairs right now are an extra 20% off. And Beck's not thinking, goes, oh, that might make the decision for us. I said, no, 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 that will never make the decision for me. (laughs) Sale price is really fool's price, F-O-O-L-S. Not full price, but fool's price. Why is that? Because now it's creating some additional impulse in me. Now, if I'm not willing to pay full price for the thing, why the hell am I going to buy the thing I don't want just because it's on sale? Mm. It's the fear, though. It's the fear. Like I might
1: want it at some future point, and it might be $20 more, $100 more. And I don't want to have to come out of pocket for that. And 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 this brings us to like, you know, all the different types of costs beyond transaction costs. This is why it's so dangerous to just think about the cost of things in terms of the price tag. It's like, hey, um, if I buy it now, I get to save $20 versus at some point in the nebulous future that I can't predict. I might want it and then it costs me a little extra money. But yeah, but there's more to what you're paying for. There's more than just the money, right? It's like, it's, it's like you mentioned, like, um, you bought something for, I don't know what price you said, like a hundred and maybe you sell it for 30 and you can say, well, we lost $70, but no, you had plenty of time to use that thing, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if you, if you own that thing for six months and you used it every day and, and it brought you a lot of value, well, you can't put a number on that. Right, it's not like you bought it for a hundred and then turned around and sold it for thirty. Yeah, that's a seventy dollars loss, right? But yeah, if you I, use yeah. it for six months, that's that's value. Or if I'm taking something that I don't want and it's adding stress, I gotta manage it, I gotta maintain it, I gotta find a place to put it. I'm paying a price for that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, just for some vague moment in the future where I may need something.
4: Yeah, you know, the the one thing I'll say about the seventy dollars loss. And I'm only saying this because um, this is how I've come to terms with sunk costs. I don't ever yeah. look at it as a seventy dollars loss. Yeah, it's sunk costs. That money's gone. Uh, if I paid eighty dollars for it, I'm out eighty dollars. Period. Mm-hmm. And then if I sell it for thirty, then I'm gaining. I'm getting thirty dollars back. But another way to look at it is that six months that you used it, like you got the seventy nine ninety nine dollars worth of it. Right. So um, the, I, I'm only saying that because again, it's another way to kind of help people accept sunk cost like yes yeah. maybe you sold it for a little less than what you bought it for um, but think about the value you got about it during uh, got with it um uh, during the time that you owned it like there's there's still some value there that's probably more than the seventy nine ninety nine. because that time the
1: time you uh used it for it's going to be finite anyway mm-hmm. like like for most of the things that we buy we don't think i'm going to have this for 80 years Right. We we think oh, I need a desk right now, mm-hmm. but there's going to come a point in your future where you probably won't need that desk. Right. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's for three months, six months, four years, at the end of the day, the amount you are paying is for the value that it brings to your life for the time that you need it. You don't make yourself keep something for five years when you only need it for four months just to get your money's worth. You got your money's worth when you used it for the purpose that
2: inspired you to buy it. Yeah. Let's turn it over to Facebook. Malabama, we got another question.
3: Bridging has a question for us. They ask, would you consider doing a hybrid Sunday symposium for people who don't live in the LA area so they can still participate online?
2: I mean, I think that really takes the spirit out of what this... We've been doing these Sunday symposiums. Our our fourth one is coming up uh, by the time this episode comes out. We're recording this right before the, the third one. And they've been beautiful and magical. But the reason they're beautiful and magical is because they are in person. It's not that I'm opposed to doing one online necessarily, but I think... That's essentially what we're doing here. We are speaking with people, whether they call in or write in. And so I don't know how different it would be if we did a virtual Sunday symposium. The idea of what we're doing is bringing a community of people together. And we've learned a lot over the first few Sunday symposiums. By the way, if you want to join us, half the tickets are free. The other half you could pay for. It's symposium. Dot com. I'd love to find a way to make these completely free. We just don't have a, a venue that is free. And so mm-hmm. we are spending thousands of dollars to rent a venue and pay staff and and all this other stuff. And so we do this once a month. I would love to run this idea by you guys here. I was going to do this after the podcast. But since we're here talking about it on, on the podcast, my, my thought was next year, maybe we take the Sunday Symposium to some other cities. Maybe we go to San Diego or maybe we go to Flagstaff or maybe we go to... Uh, Oakland, we go to Fresno, we go to these different places, maybe places we haven't been before. Mm. And we have this experience because it's not about the Josh Ryan and TK show. It's about creating this community of people, bringing them together. One thing that Ryan and I did back in 2014 is we did minimalist.org, these free local meetup groups in a hundred different cities. We did a hundred city tour and we left behind a free local meetup group in every city. So, to indirectly answer Bridging's question, yeah, there's a way to do this, but you can do it. There are free local meetup groups close to you wherever you are. Maybe it's one of the minimalist.org meetup groups or some other meetup group because what we're really trying to do is create this communal experience and then leave something behind ultimately. So it's not us running the show. But we've provided that space for the community to get together. Open-minded people, like-minded people, active-minded people all coming together and sharing their woes, their struggles, their successes, their fears, their budgeting tips, their careers, everything that they want to share with respect to minimalism decluttering new clutter etc and each week or each month ryan there's a new theme over at minimalist.org if you Mm -hmm. want to talk about that real quick Uh, yeah i mean right now is the month of october so they're over there talking about um yeah uh how do you
4: purchase gifts like a minimalist how do you give gifts like a minimalist how do you receive gifts like a minimalist i mean this comes up all the time we were going to do this in december um, but that's too late to mm-hmm. talk about gift giving. Right. So uh, we set it up for October. But yeah, um, yeah, it's, there's some really awesome groups. And, you know, Josh and I aren't like giving an, an agenda to these different groups. So if you show up and they're not talking about gift giving, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You're still going to meet some really awesome people, some open-minded people, some like-minded people. Uh, yeah, you're going to have a great time. And, you know, it's cool if if uh, Minimalist.org, if they don't have a local meetup in your city you can do the online city. And that I forget how many people are in that right now. Like 15, 16,000. Yeah, but that thing is hopping. So you have 16,000 people who are sharing their experiences with the minimalism game or they're sharing their experiences with getting rid of sentimental items or whatever it is. It's a really, really awesome uh, community. And these are we, all free. I got Mahalik yeah. over here. Professor Sean, hey, what's up?
6: Ryan, do you know what the topic will be in November when this podcast comes up?
4: Uh <laughs> insert November topic here. I'll look at it. Um <laughs> so, <laughs> not, ha- not cool, Sean. Yeah. So have we um so have we uh ha- have we published any um uh Sunday symposiums on Patreon yet?
2: No. Okay,
4: so is that something that we might be doing? Because that might be the middle ground to this. Is like, hey, you know, maybe on Patreon one day and keep an eye on for that. Like, maybe yeah. I mean, yeah. We,
2: we post our live events there, so I, I could see. You know, we do one live event a month for our true fans mm-hmm. over on Patreon. But you um, know, it, and it's great to to get the actual materials there. But it's not the same thing as this interpersonal Sunday symposium community experience, and that's why we're doing it in the first place. Yeah, here's why I think
1: this problem is partially resolvable in that form, we could say, all right, yeah, we'll just put the video up, and why it's partially unresolvable. We live in a world now where we are moving more and more towards the trend of turning every experience into an artifact, right? We take a picture of everything, we make a video of everything, we share everything online. And... We're fossilizing everything. We're fossilizing everything. And there's nothing wrong with those digital artifacts but there is a unique value to creating an experience that is not repeatable and that can't yeah. be reduced to an artifact. Mm. This is a moment in space and time that happened. And either you were there and you were, or you were not. And there's no right or wrong about it. You're not a bad person if you couldn't make it. There are a lot of cool moments in space and time that happened and T.K. Coleman couldn't be there. And that's part of the magic of those moments. And so even if we did say, you know what? We'll just put it online. I'm going to recreate the problem by saying, OK, that's cool, but I still want to create something for us and our our, our people that just can't that, where that can't be done. Yeah. And so no matter what, we're just going to kick the ball further down until eventually I'm standing in a corner somewhere refusing to let any cameras in saying, all right, well, this is going to be the experience that can't be digitized. I
2: got to have something that can't be transformed into an artifact. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're welcome to attend. It's 200 seats. We we intentionally keep these limited. If we do do other cities in the future, there's a possibility we could do like bookstores, ways to make these events completely free where we don't have to pay for a particular venue. We have a venue donated to us or or something like that. And then we could welcome in more people, but still keep it an intimate in-person experience because that's what it's really about, being there with people together. Yeah. I, I love the ephemerality of it.
4: Um, I love what you're saying about that, TK. I was there, dude. October yeah. 30th, 2022 at the Sunday Symposium. <laughs> but but <laughs> I do love the conversation about seeing if we can get to
1: more spaces and exploring what that might look like. Me too. Sure. And of course. Yeah, yeah.
2: absolutely. And, and that's, it's the balance that we have to have here where mm. it's like, yes, my compulsion is let's film this, let's put it out, let's get it in front of as many people as possible, right? Yeah. But this is not about Width, it's about depth. And these events, we we go deep. We don't know what to expect. There's walking the tightrope every time we go in there. And the quality of the event is often dictated by the quality of the questions that the audience asks and what direction they take these. Because the last one we had someone just crying and super upset about. But, well, I'm not even going to go into all the details Let's of just it. say Josh loves making our audience members cry. <laughs> <laughs> Tears of joy, ladies and gentlemen. Tears of joy. <sighs> Ryan, what time is it? Oh, it's about 11 a.m. Pacific time.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you mean the lightning round. Yes, Josh, it is time for the lightning round where we answer your text messages. You can text your questions, your comments, your smart aleck remarks, your compliments to T.K. Coleman, if you want. (laughs) 937-202-4654.
2: Well, I have some bad news here, Ryan. Oh, I don't know if it's really bad, but it's just... uh, Why are you trying to moralize news? (laughs) (laughs) I have some ugly news. (laughs) Unfortunate. Some unfortunate news here. So... During the lightning round, this is where Ryan, TK, and I do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes, so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. You can find all of those social media pithy responses at theminimalists.com slash podcast right there in our show notes. And when you text your questions to us at the number Ryan just gave, it goes to my phone and Ryan's phone and and... Eventually, TK's phone, we hoped, and I say we hoped because I just got the news from Community, which is the service we use, Community Text, where we are able to have this service. We pay 250 bucks a month. We've been mm. doing this for years, mm-hmm. which is a lot of money to be able to text yeah. people, right? $250 yeah. a month. Yeah. Well, I just got the news from them that it's going to go up to almost $2,000 a month. What? Wow. So we're just going to give out TK's phone number (laughs) (laughs) directly. (laughs) And the unfortunate thing here is that we were sending folks a Monday morning minimal maximum each week, just a nice way to start your week off with a dose of simplicity and we're not going to be able to keep doing that going forward because of budgeting. Corporate greed, baby. This is not the best use of our 1500 or $2,000. No. $2, no. Even, even if we could afford it,
4: I'm tempted to just be like, no, like you can't blackmail us like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There's, there's a couple of companies, and I won't get into it now, but there are a couple of companies who have done this. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's slimy. It's so slimy. When anyway. do we go up to 2000 by the time this episode comes
1: out,
2: mm. did they
4: explain why are they
1: adding new features? Are there is their cost of doing business going up? what's going on?
4: But they, yeah, they're a corporation and they want to make money. I mean, and but, stuck, but, they but did they even lie. They have They have stuck sounding? the needle in our arm,
2: and they're like, "You <laughs> have,
4: or we have what you want?" And it's going to cost yeah.
2: you this now. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. what I'll say going forward is, you can message us your lightning round questions on. TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're at The Minimalists. Mm. And you'll find us there on all of those platforms. And you mm-hmm. can message us for free. We just can't afford to keep spending. Even if we could afford it, I don't think that's the best use of yeah. $2,000 a month. And, and so I don't have any animus toward them. I, the the reason that they explained is there, there are certain text messaging costs and they're, they're going to a per message basis. And because we have thousands wow. of people on that list... Every time we send a text. So I could do the service for about 200 bucks a month if we sent no texts, which wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. So we could receive them but we couldn't respond back. Right, but we also couldn't send large inspirational texts of minimal maxims each week. And really what we're using it for, we couldn't use it the same way. And to continue to use it the same way that we're using it right now to add value to people's lives, it would cost us way more than we're willing to spend. I was willing to spend $250 a month, which is a big expense for us every month. But going beyond that is just simply not in our budget. What's the name of the service provider? Community. So, hey, to
1: any and all competitors, to community, <laughs> I want to appeal to uh, a little voluntarism, a <laughs> little entrepreneurial <laughs> thinking. Yeah. If there are any alternative services out there that can beat that deal, mm. we're open to considering your offer. This is a great opportunity for a competitor to say, hey, I'll be happy to steal that business by making your customers happy in a way that you're not willing
4: to do. I'm happy to entertain what offers you have. Spoken like a true economist. I love it. Now, if it was worth the $2,000 a month, I would totally be willing to give Danny Unknown a pay cut. (laughs) (laughs) That's not bad news. It is ugly news, though. Yeah. That is unfortunate, man. When he said we hoped that we'd
1: include TK on this, I thought he was saying because the price was going up, we're no longer going to be needing TK services. Yeah. We need yeah. to go back down to just two people.
2: <laughs> we, we had to choose between TK and texting. We chose texting. <laughs> we chose
4: texting. Now,
1: Josh,
5: uh, you and I yeah. used to
4: work in telecom. Uh-huh. Um, how much money does it cost a phone company to send it or receive a text? Yeah, and uh, essentially nothing. Or, or data. Yeah. Like it's data and text messaging. Now, there's equipment cost. Mm-hmm. There are some costs. I'm not trying to make it sound
2: free. But once you have the equipment in place, like the, it's... The fixed costs are there. Yeah. The, the nominal costs are so uh, minuscule. But maybe look, they have text messaging fees. Maybe they need to change their telecom provider a Community to get free <laughs> text messages. <laughs> anyway, let's <laughs> jump jump into our lightning round here. Taylor has a question for us.
3: I just read an article about how some big retail stores are considering letting people keep items they want to return while still giving them a refund. What does this say about the true cost of returning some things?
2: You know the cost goes way beyond the price tag, and not not buying a thing is letting it go in advance. So I prefer to not return things. I had to return something this week, and it drove me crazy. Mm. I had to return a like little sculpture that we bought because it was way too big and I had to repackage it. I had to go through like the men I've taken to the FedEx store mm. at the wait in line. And there are all of these other calls. But man, wouldn't I have just saved had I not bought this thing in the first place? Now, it turns out it was a thing that I wanted. It just didn't fit where I wanted it. And so you'll never get past it. I understand where some of these corporations are coming from. They don't want to deal with all the logistics of returning. However, I will say this, that it probably will incentivize some bad actors to go in and say, I'll just return it. Yeah, This happens with Casper Mattress now. like so if mm. you don't want that Casper Mattress, they'll come donate it to your local donation warehouse. Then you can just go buy it back for like $50 yeah. instead of the $1,000 you spent on it. <laughs> and it incentivizes bad behavior. That mm. is one of the knock-on effects of inadvertently changing your your process yeah yeah i shouldn't say inadvertently but it's one of the knock-on effects of of changing the process and not anticipating that that other result yeah
1: Yeah, that's good
2: uh my maxim here was uh great
1: businesses value people over profits and so i think there is a certain degree of win-win when a company says all right you don't have to worry about giving that back to us we'll just send you a replacement. The win-win is that the company doesn't have to worry about coming to pick it up and dealing with all the logistics of returning the item, but you also don't have to deal with being harassed over it, especially when it's something small. And I know for me, there's, there are fewer things more irritating when, than when a, a provider gets it wrong And then I have to do the extra work of getting a box and boxing something back up and doing this and doing that. I want them to take that, you know, um, take that inconvenience. And so there's an aspect to it uh, that's a win-win. But, you know, I I really think one of the things it says is that the cost of replacing a customer is much greater than the cost of replacing a thing. Mm. Yeah, that's the truth. the best businesses are the ones that don't argue with you when you say, I'm unhappy, I'm not satisfied with your product. That's why people love Chick-fil-A so much, right? I mean, even if you lie and they know they're taking that risk, hey, you guys forgot my soda. They're not gonna be like, no, we didn't, check, Mm -hmm. right? Even though they know you might be lying and that's a risk, they'll say, no problem. Mm -hmm. And they'll just replace the item because they understand that satisfied customers outweigh the losses that come with people that abuse the system. There's nothing like making customers so happy that they're willing to go tell 10 other people how awesome you are. Yeah. And so I, I think it's a it's a positive move. And, and that's something that gets overlooked with entrepreneurship. Taking care of your customers and making them happy and not just trying to ding them for every
2: dime is actually good for business in the long run. Mm, it's the opposite of what we're experiencing with the community text messaging platform. Right? right, yeah. And now maybe they can't afford to keep us around because their business changed substantially. But at this point, I simply can't afford it. You can't afford it. You can't afford it. We can't afford it. And it's not the best use of our money.
4: Yeah. Uh, yeah, my pet—the answer is this. The true cost of an item extends well beyond the price tag. So there's the cost of storing the thing, cleaning the thing, watering the thing, fixing the thing, changing the batteries in the thing, refueling the thing, changing the oil in the thing, replacing the thing. Uh, and, you know... When it's all said and done, we we eventually get rid of the thing, mm-hmm. and like that doesn't even include like the psychological uh, or emotional or even the environmental costs of our things. When I hear something like this, that's what pops up in my mind, like the casper mattress it's like, oh wow, like we look at our finite resources as expendable like mm-hmm. as a as something that we can just kind of toss aside and let the land landfill deal with it, let the environment deal with it, yeah um but yeah, I mean, this has always been. An issue with uh, with the true cost.
2: we got so much more to talk about. Malabama, let's check in with our live stream. What questions do we have? By the way, every Tuesday on Patreon for our video private podcast subscribers, we do a Patreon live stream where you can ask your questions and drop your comments in the chat. What do you got for us, Malabama?
3: Lots of love today and plenty of questions. We're going to start with Lindsay with an E. I've gotten so accustomed to my current lifestyle that things like Netflix, HBO Max, etc. are hard to let go of. How do we decide what to cut out when things are already accounted for in your budget?
2: I'm not going to tell you how to do it, Lindsay, but I'll tell you how I do it. I will do the scorched earth approach. You've heard of burning fields, right? It doesn't have my name is Joshua (laughs) Fields Milburn, and I'm often burning fields. So Mm -hmm. When farmers burn fields so they can replant it it refertilizing the land, give it a break to start from scratch. Mm. And so I did this recently with my subscription services. I got rid of, Netflix and Hulu. I got rid of Paramount Plus and Apple TV and YouTube Premium and Spotify and Apple Music and Pandora and Tidal. Yes, I had Tidal as well. I had all of these streaming services. And so there was probably around a dozen, 13, 14 streaming services that over the time, over time I had accumulated. It didn't all happen at once. And so what did I do? I got rid of all of them, 100% of them. And then I just waited. I didn't wait a month or a year or whatever. I just said, all right, I'm gonna give myself some time. Mm -hmm. When do I miss it? Immediately, YouTube Premium. I needed that back because I hate advertisements. Advertisements suck. Let's get rid of all of these advertisers. So I brought that back. And then, oh yeah, you know what? I do listen to a lot of music. Apple Music made sense to me. The streaming platform, great, did that. And then... I waited, waited, waited. Ah, you know, I don't really need this. I don't miss that at all. I don't Mm. miss Hulu. And all of a sudden you realize like, oh, I only have two or three or four streaming services now, but I've cut 10 of them out of my life. And by doing this regularly, you don't have to just do it with that, but anything that's in your budget. If you have this giant budget with 100 monthly expenses and you got down to zero, would you repurchase these monthly subscriptions mm. starting today. And if you don't feel compelled to do so, let them go. I love yeah. that you, sure. and and like what it started with was getting rid of your
4: internet when you move up to Ventura County. So like that was really the foundation of like, well, I don't have internet now. So I'm probably not going to need these different services. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say you could even take it a step further. Um, what what I've been practicing, uh, my buddy taught me this, um, you can watch whatever you need to watch on HBO Max or Paramount, whatever the streaming services that uh, Lindsay mentioned there. And then you can cancel your subscription. And then if there's something else you want to watch, you could sign back up for it a month or two later. They would love for you to sign back up. In fact, sometimes they give you a better deal when you when, mm. when they win back a customer. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's a middle ground for you, Lindsay. Like, when's the yeah. last time you watch HBO Max? When's the last time you watch Paramount Plus? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, turn them off and turn them on when you want to use them. Or never turn them on again if right. you don't. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. You just made me think about Spotify. Like, I gotta, I wanna be cool. I, I wanna be
2: cool so bad, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You know? Spotify is inferior, right? So. Oh, is it not cool anymore? I'm not saying that. It's way cooler, but yeah. isn't that how it works? Many of the cooler things are inferior. Oh, yeah. yeah Apple yeah. Music's. Uh, the with the lossless audio, their audio as long as you have it all turned on in the settings, mm-hmm. their audio is so much better than Spotify's. It's not even close. What does it say about me? Because like I was just at uh, my aunt's place and I'm talking
4: to my little cousin. She's like 13. She had a friend over. Her friend was like 13 years old, and they're listening to Spotify. And um, if I mention Pandora, they look at me like I'm a dinosaur. No. <laughs> they're like Pandora. Oh, was that on the radio back in the day, Grandpa? Oh my anyway, but it, what does it say about me though that like. I really do hold on to Spotify because I'm like, yeah, I am cool. I'm using with the kids for use. <laughs> I, ever use it. I use it to listen to Rogan every once in a while, but. Yeah, um, yeah. I need to I need to rethink some of these other services I have too, for sure. I'm glad this this topic got brought up. Ryan's walking at a roll with the baseball cap
1: to the side. <laughs> Hello, fellow kids,
4: <laughs>
1: with the, the backpack on.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what's up, peeps? <laughs> <laughs> so, have you discovered anything that's the bomb lately? <laughs> hey guys, what's what's popping?
1: <laughs> no. um, so, one quick thing I'll say about this is that there are fewer things we underestimate. Make more than our ability to be happy without the things we already wish we could get rid of. And so, a good example of this is think about uh, compulsive habits or addictions, you know, things that you just want to stop doing, stuff that you want to stop eating. When you're thinking about it hypothetically, oh, but will I be able to live without that, that, that pleasure, that comfort, that luxury? And, and you already wish that you could. But you don't get to experience that power and that clarity and that lightness and that freedom until you do get rid of it, right? And so I would suggest that scorch earth technique where you say this, I'm going to get rid of them all and maybe I have five of them and I'm going to say I have the permission to keep something like one or two, but here's my rule. The next thing I want to watch, if I sign up for it, that's the thing I got to keep. So mm. if a movie comes out and I want to watch it on Disney Plus, okay, I can sign up for Disney Plus. But if I do that, that's the one I'm keeping for a year. Mm. And that cost will make you say, oh, do I really want Disney Plus for the sake of this one movie? Or do I want to wait on something I feel more excited about? It'll just introduce an element of critical thinking to it that you might find helpful.
2: Mm. We've got a I bunch like more that. segments to get to. We've got our obsolete objects. We have the advertisement suck segment. We'll review a sucky ad. This one, guys. I can't believe it. And it's not even technically an ad, but we'll we'll get to it. Uh, are selling pagers again? <laughs> sort of. Oh, man. It's, it's so bad that I turned it into an ad. <laughs> we also have a, a home tour, but we're taking a detour. We're going into the studio, doing a studio tour later on the private podcast. Many more live stream questions to check in with later in the episode as well. But Malabama, what do you got for us first?
3: Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners.
6: Hi, this is Joe from Dallas. I was listening to some old podcasts, your collection one. I'm a disc golfer, and I used to have 500-plus discs, of which I had probably thrown 50 of them more than one time. I had a big bag of putters, uh, 20 putters I used to carry around to practice putting with. Uh, One day I bought a smaller bag so I could walk around with the putters and not have quite as much weight, only fit six putters in it. Uh, I had forgotten my larger bag and just had the smaller bag when I went out to play the next time. And I had to grab five discs to take on my round. And I shaved four strokes off of my best round ever. It was not a fluke. I continued to play with this smaller bag with only five, a uh, couple of drivers, a couple of mid ranges, a couple of putters. And I kept getting between two and five less than I had ever played before. Uh, I could only throw what I was really comfortable with because that's the only choice I had, and I became a much more skilled disc golfer by cutting down those options.
5: Hi, guys. This is Stephanie from Harrison, Ohio. I'm calling in regard to your May 1st episode with Rich Roll about food. I had a comment and an added value. Um, My comment is that it was really nice to hear from somebody who is vegan um, about keeping things simple because I've transformed over the past few months um through my vegan journey and I've discovered the same thing that just keeping things simple when it comes to food uh makes things a whole lot easier. It's not as hard as what you might think in the beginning. But in my beginning phase of becoming vegan, I did find uh, a blog and um, a cook and baker who really added a lot of value to my my recipes, and what I chose to add to my daily intake of food. And her blog is The Minimalist Baker. Her idea is that she has the least amount of ingredients, the least amount of tools to make each recipe. And I have not had a bad recipe from her blog yet. You should check her out.
2: Welcome back to The Minimalist's Private Podcast. Before we get into our Other simple living segments. Let's read some more about less. I have something to infuriate you, ladies and gentlemen. This is from The Guardian. This is uh, number 10, which is uh, 10 Downey Street in in the UK. Mm -hmm. They they call it number 10, but it's like what we would call the Department of the Treasury here. Oh. So it's UK's uh, treasury considers 50-year mortgages that could... Passed down generation. Get out of here. Get out of here. Cautious welcome for idea to tackle housing crisis, but experts warn of risks to those inheriting. So <laughs> You think? <laughs> I'm going to read a little bit of this and then we'll talk about it. Well, you can follow along. We'll put a link to this in the mm. show notes, theminimalists.com slash podcast. You can find a link to this article over there. Downing Street is exploring the idea of trying to tackle the housing crisis, with ultra-long mortgages of up to 50 years. This is the worst part, guys. What is this, America? That could pass between generations, allowing more people to build up equity. Okay. Okay, so I'm building up equity my entire life. It's like, if you're paying rent for someone else, you're not building up equity. You're building up equity for someone else. And what a farce that is anyway. I mean, TK, maybe we could talk about this in a bit. I know this isn't TK's tweet of the week yet where he goes on some anti-government
4: tirade. <laughs> TK's tweet this week,
2: down with the government. <laughs>
4: Gentlemen thoughts? <laughs> government sucks.
1: What do you guys think? Millie, over to you. Uh, so,
2: what... Um, oh, shoot. What I've... <laughs> I don't even know where I was going with that. I don't even refresh know refresh my memory, please. Uh, Fifty-year mortgages. Oh yeah, so building equity—it's a farce. Let's. Here's the thing. Let's say I uh, own my house. Do I really own it? Because I don't actually. When anyone has a monopoly on violence, and yeah. I think this is where TK, when I will, our Venn diagrams overlap a little bit <laughs> here. Mm-hmm. But um, let's say I own my house, and it's a five hundred thousand dollar house, right? Yeah. And my monthly. Mortgage or not, my monthly tax, tax payments, yeah, yeah is you know, $700 a month. Right. If I don't pay that, eventually, mm-hmm. at its terminus, they will drag me out of my home. Yep. And take the house from me and the land and the land, everything that's in it. And so, do I actually own it at all? So, you're, you're really just renting it from the government this whole time. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's it. That's what's happening. <laughs> what am I missing here, though? Like, I mean, I, I own the house theoretically. I mean, I don't right now because I have a mortgage. That you have the I'm working right to, to live in it, and there are property rights. Um, so there are certain rights you get with air quote ownership, right? But there's no such thing as a right in real life. these are things that are made up by other human beings oh, at some point. Y-
4: yes, but like you said about the monopoly on violence, um, these constructs uh, are very real when someone with a monopoly on violence enforces these
2: constructs. But my point is, you're absolutely right. No question about that. But my point is that if I'm renting or I own, it's effectively the same thing in most respects. Because... What you're saying yeah. is, I still have property rights. Sure. They can't just come into my house yep. if I'm renting. I could be renting a shed down the street and you can't, the government can't just go in there. What's that go for in LA? It's uh, <laughs> 3400 <laughs> That doesn't <laughs> surprise me.
4: No, but yeah, but uh, no, you're right. You are effectively renting. And the question is, is like, how much is your rent payment each month? Because yeah, either you're, you're renting it from the government or you're renting it from the bank. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you actually are renting. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I see where you're going with it. I don't know. TK, enlighten us on this. Expound a little bit. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, you, yeah, I don't know what to
1: say. I mean, in, in some watered down sense, you really do own it, provided you meet the condition of paying the property taxes, mm. right? Yes. One, one critical difference between that and renting, however, is that you are able to cash out of that deal once you've paid off your home. Mm. So if you've paid off a home, I mean, if, if you bought a home and the value is a million dollars and, and maybe you're paying, you know, um, I don't know, um, in LA, what would that be? You're paying half half of that price every month. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but like, mm. uh, and, and you say, you know what? I want to I move to a different state and I want to get a smaller property, right? I want to get something more affordable. I want to downsize or I want to go into the renting an apartment game. Something changes, right? Um, y- you're in an empty nest situation or you're widowed or something along those lines. It might make sense to sell that house and be able to have you know, a surplus of funds with which you could do other things. That's one thing that you don't get when you're just renting an apartment you're,
2: you're but, but also bring it back to this article that's one thing you don't get if you have a 50 year mortgage as well oh yeah mm-hmm. so
1: so the incentives are are really jacked up when it comes to that i mean basic economic principle people respond to incentives. When you change the rules of the game, you change the way the players of the game play, right? And when the rules are such that you have to be good at something, you incentivize people to get good at it. When the rules are such that you can get away with being bad at it, you disincentivize people from doing the things that are necessary to be good. And when it comes to these 50-year mortgages, what that means is more people are going to enter the game of taking on these liabilities that they wouldn't otherwise take on because they know now they have more leeway to hand that on to someone else. And they not only have that leeway, but they have a noble sounding narrative Mm. that they can tell themselves about something good that they're doing for the next generation. Basically the passing down of debt is being reframed as the creation of generational wealth. Wow. Wow.
4: Yeah. So this really, uh, kind of blows my mind. Um, I was at my aunt's place upstate New York. Uh, a lot of Mennonites, and she was explaining to me that in the Mennonite community, they uh, encourage 100 year mortgages because you are allowed. It's 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 seen as your right to essentially plan your next generation's finances. Essentially, is mm-hmm. what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I'm thinking like, oh, like it doesn't. It, it seems like. Um, That they're given the right of like, hey, if you want to put your kids and grandkids into debt, you have the right to do that because you're the man or whatever the reasoning is. Mm -hmm. But it's blown my mind because what you said is probably how it's pitched. Like, oh, you were like, you're creating generational wealth for your grandkids. Yeah. Mm.
3: That is not how you build a legacy or that rather there's better ways to do that. Yeah. Oh, I would Mm. be so upset with my parents.
2: I know. Oh, the The article goes on to say mortgage experts said the idea could bring some benefits, but flagged problems, including put, the potential to saddle children with debt. I mean, that's the big thing, right? Imagine when your grandfather died a few years ago and you found out, oh, but also he also left me half a million dollars worth of debt. You'd be like, what? what? I, I, am I responsible? Do I have to pay this? Now, the way that things are set up right now, no, you wouldn't have to pay that. Some bank would... Uh, subsume the property, et cetera, they would have to deal with it. You wouldn't have to deal with it. Mm. But imagine if you were now forced to pay because someone else died and you happen to be part of their lineage. Now, I don't know if that's the stipulation here, but that seems to be the implication yeah. of what they're saying.
4: Now, does that happen regardless of the house and the mortgage? Cause I have heard, and I don't know if you were just speaking to this, but like if um, I have a bunch of debt and I got a kid and I die, and the kid's old enough, like some of that debt is, it could transfer to that. No, no. Oh, okay. no I
2: mean, whatever your estate has left, the money of that will go to pay off the debt, uh, the, the creditors. Mm-hmm. And if there's nothing left over after that, then you simply just don't get any of the inheritance. So say your grandpa had $100,000 in the bank, mm-hmm. but he had a million dollars worth of debt. They would take the $100,000. They would apply it evenly to the preferred people first and then whoever was left would get whatever was left and you would get nothing because he owed the money. I'm just trying to imagine the college debt (laughs) that
4: is going to have to be forgiven, especially with our generation, because I think it started with with Gen X. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if that's correct or not, but I mean, my parents' generation didn't have $150,000 worth of college student loans. That's right. But like there are many people our age and younger who are starting to take on those loans. Hmm. forgiven. Such such interesting language. Again, <laughs> the, the reality
1: is, this is not an anti-government tweet, okay? <laughs> but the reality is... Yeah, we'll you, get to that in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> the reality of what's happening is you, entity who loan the money with the hope of making more back than what you gave out based on you betting on the future of the people you were loaning it to that they would have greater earning power in the future are now conceding the point that you made a bad bet and you can't collect on your debts. And whereas any business person or bank would be would be forced to just acknowledge it for what it is, we failed, we issued out some bad loans and we can't collect that on our debts. You can reframe it as forgiveness. Mm. I'm, I'm going to forgive, you don't have to pay me back. <laughs> I'm just gonna forgive it. Not. the reality is you made a bad bet. And you're not mm-hmm. cashing in on those loans. You, you, you appropriated funds unwisely. Mm-hmm. You'd be mm-hmm. out of business if you were a business. But okay, you can go ahead and forgive. You can go ahead and forgive. Reality is you can't collect You yeah. made bad bets. Mm. Mm. The, uh, the, and, and that says nothing either way about the morality of forgiving. It's just, you know, the power to reframe what it is. Sorry, Well, it's ahead,
4: Well, it's funny because forgiveness is seen as a moral high ground. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. they use this word yeah. where, you know, they, they let you think that they're taking the moral high ground.
2: I'm going to move on to our talk aboutables. I want to talk about morality, specifically this term I heard recently, weaponized morality, or how we are weaponizing morality. Mm. And it made perfect sense to me as soon as I heard it. I don't even know who said it, but I just internalized that phrasing yeah. because. That seems to be what's going on, the amplification of weaponized morality. I think we've always done it. Yes. Back to ancient times, Mm -hmm. but now it's so heavily amplified through our tweets, our TikTok videos, whatever it is, we are weaponizing morality at some grand scale. And TK, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had any any thoughts about this. I mean we can get into some specifics here. Kanye West has been in the news a, a lot recently, right? Mm-hmm. He had this White Lives Matter t-shirt on and I saw that probably a lot different from how a lot of other people saw it. And what I saw is I know Kanye is a genius artist with respect to music. I also think with respect to fashion. But also, I think he is a very Creative thinker, and he thinks in ways a lot of people don't. I heard a great excerpt from an interview he did, which was subsequently pulled down from the internet. But he had this quote he said, I'm not out of control, I'm just not under their control. And that stood with me because when I saw the White Lives Matter shirt that he was wearing, I thought the statement that he was making, and this is again, this is why art is open for interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. I thought the statement he was saying is, Hey, We've been saying Black Lives Matter for several years now and nothing has improved. And so clearly, it's still only the white lives that matter. Oh, wow. And I'm showing that through my art. Now, that's the way I interpret it. Everyone else is free to interpret a bunch of different ways. What I liked is he went on about five different interviews and explained it five different ways, which is something David Lynch would do. I've seen David Lynch do that, where he explains his art five different ways to confuse people. Mm. And so I saw that and I'm like, Kanye's an artist. Like this, we were taking him literally, but you don't take an abstract painting literally. You interpret it. You don't take a Rorschach test literally. I mean, for some reason, every Rorschach looks like my father beating my my mother with a microwave. <laughs> That's what it looks like to me too. Your father beating your mom with a microwave. <laughs> and and no, we don't look at art that way. And so people got really outraged when he started making these comments. And I understand the outrage. Mm -hmm. I understand where that's coming from, especially when we assign a particular expectation or a particular meaning to the art that someone creates. Now, all of a sudden, I have the fuel. But what we do is we now weaponize our morality. It's the self-righteousness where I'm right and you are wrong. And because you are wrong, I'm going to prove how right I am, how much better I am as a person than Mm -hmm. you.
1: Lot to unpack there. So first, when it comes to Kanye, I think there's an important distinction that has to be made anytime there's a debate about another person's words and the harm that those words may have caused. And that is a distinction between what you meant when you said something, which refers to your intentions and what you were trying to convey and how you articulated it. And sometimes we can seem to be in agreement about one thing while being in, a, in disagreement about another thing. And sometimes we're not clear with ourselves which one of those things we're debating. Sometimes it's all mixed up and bound together. Uh, and, and I think there are some people who will say, all right, given the opportunity to explain what you were trying to convey, I can get on board with that. I can go with you there. But there's something about the way you conveyed it that I want to hold you accountable for or that I want to criticize you for. And something that does come along with free speech is that we not only generate a reaction from the world in terms of our intentions and our conveyed meanings, but we generate reactions from the world also in terms of how we say things. And one of the interesting things about Kanye is he's not just brilliant in terms of fashion and in terms of music, but he's also brilliant in terms of getting attention. Mm-hmm. And he might be better
2: at that than those other things. Wow. if there's one wow. thi- if there's he's he's, he's- Mozart-level musician. No question about that. And so you're saying he's also the Mozart of attention-getting. Hey, there are a lot of great m- musicians that don't get attention. There are
1: a lot of talented, brilliant people that are very bitter because they can't get any eyeballs on their work. They can't get any ears to tune in. Kanye is a man who knows how to keep his name in people's mouths. He is a man who knows how to get the world talking about him. And he's been doing it for a very long time, right? Right. This goes way back. Like Kanye was like this in Chicago. And so he is someone who, when he communicates, he's not just someone that's saying, oh, you know, he's got some like intended meanings that, you know, can be explained in a certain way that can make you kind of agree. But he's also communicating the way that he communicates because he wants a reaction. He wants anger. He wants conversation. He wants people to get mad at him. He wants the fight. He wants the bloodbath. He wants it. And so I don't think there's anything he said that counts as a, oh, okay, I realize how it landed now. And in light of this new information, I probably should have said it differently. He might be explaining what he means, but he definitely ain't apologizing for how he said it because how he says things is engineered specifically for the kind of reaction that it's getting. And there are some people when I listen to them, I say to myself, man, I genuinely feel bad for that person because I think they were trying to make a good point and they they made a slip or they they fail to accurately anticipate how people might respond, mm. and now the whole point is going to be lost. I feel that way about some people. I can't make myself feel that way about him because he's really good at deliberately choosing the way he wants to say things in order to get the reaction. And so I think Kanye is getting the reaction that he wants right now. And so um, he is someone who I think the social punishment that he's facing, the social criticism that he's facing. It's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this because on that same interview that you referenced, the, the Drink Champs interview, he he indicated, he explicitly stated that one of the reasons he's using this highly generalized language about Jewish media and why he's not backing down and, and, and pointing out specific people that have offended him, but he's talking in very general terms, is because that for him, he thinks will be an effective strategy For whatever he wants to do in 2024, which he was kind of alluding to indirectly. So there's a part of me that says, I'm willing to talk about him. I'm willing to think critically about the things that he says. I would even love to have him on here so that I can ask him the questions that I have. But he's not the kind of person I can feel sorry for in terms of the way the world is treating him right now, because this is what he wants. This is what he has engineered. And the same way when he walked up on that stage and took Taylor Swift's moment, he knew what he was doing. That wasn't a mental health problem. He knew exactly what he was doing. Hmm. He knew the the, the records that would sell after that, the way he'd be talked about. When he said white lives matter, that wasn't like, oh man, I could have communicated in that different way. When he said slavery was a choice, there was no, oh, I could have communicated that in a different way. He knew what that would make people feel. Mm -hmm. And for him, that's a strategy of, okay, now that I got your attention, listen to me. Will that work? That's the story that remains to be told. But I think he's exactly in the space that he wants to be in.
2: He's the Mozart of subversiveness. Yeah. Mm. And I think what TK is saying here is we are at a moment where Kanye West has garnered all this attention. And people are outraged. And so they feel compelled to express their opinions. But when I say weaponized morality, people are expressing their opinions as though... It, there is some truth undergirding it. And that might be true, but more often than not, it's amplifying one's opinion. And what I heard hmm. TK talk about so eloquently right now, he didn't weaponize his own morality. He didn't say, well, you're wrong, you're bad, you should do this, you should have done this different, you should get sued, whatever it is, right? Right you didn't weaponize the morality. You have a particular stance and clearly Hmm. you're not a fan of his behavior and the way he's acting. And I could tell that from your response. But what I could also tell is you weren't trying to put yourself up on a pedestal and say, well, here's why I'm better than you because you have such bad ideas. It fundamentally comes down to opinions, which brings me to our next talkable. Oh man, I thought I,
1: I, I thought there was some space we could go to with <clears> the, <throat> the weaponizing of the morality, shutting down bank account, <laughs>
4: shutting down. But but maybe that's another time. I, I think I think weaponizing morality could be a whole podcast. Yeah,
2: but yeah. I think I enough. think that's great. I think yeah. we we do a whole weaponized morality podcast episode. Yeah, it'd be great. But since we're talking about opinions and people's <laughs> viewpoints, there's This thing that keeps coming up with me recently, and I I just want to express this with our private podcast subscribers. I wrote this down. I, I called it absorbing dichotomous feedback. And sometimes there are things that are simply mutually exclusive that you can't meet in the middle. So we get feedback from our audience all the time. And we do listen to that feedback. We also get a lot of criticism. And I don't tend to listen to any criticism. I'll explain the difference real quick. Feedback prevents some sort of like, here's the way I would like things to be, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas, you know, someone, I put out a new episode of uh, How to Write Better, the podcast, and the title of it is Amy Schumer's memoir is so bad. Mm -hmm. And, someone direct messages me and they're like, I'm unfollowing you. You need to get over yourself. And it's like, oh, you didn't even listen to the episode. Because mm. like, clearly in the episode, I'm like, hey, even the best writers have bad writing in the books. This is not a bad person. It doesn't mean she's a bad writer. Right. It just means that there's a bad line here. Let me show you what bad writing looks like. Mm. By the way, I also review my own bad writing <laughs> from my own books. <laughs> and so I, I too am not immune to this, right? And so... I accept feedback when someone's like, hey, you could have done this better. You could have done this differently. And a, a few examples have come up in the last month or so. Uh, one is often our episodes of the private podcast will go three hours, especially the three of us really get into it. Mm-hmm. And some people are like, it's just too long. I hate it when you go three hours. And then the other people are like, why are you only making it two hours? Why are you limiting yourself? It should be three hours. Well, it's mutually exclusive. It's either two hours, three hours, or... I mean, what am I going to do? Start splitting hairs? Well, actually, every episode needs to be two hours and 23 minutes. Right. No, it's... What I've found is we do the appropriate length for the episode. Now, we'll also throw in timers so that we can try to stay on track so we're not continuing to wander on and putting up some creative constraints, some limitations that allow us to create something meaningful for an audience. And then TK coming on board. By and large, people love TK here. And I get a message yesterday from a guy who's like, you know, with TK on the show, it just feels like you have a guest every time and I just can't subscribe anymore. And it's like, okay. I totally understand that. Mm -hmm. Right? But for every one person like that, there are 10 people who are saying, oh, TK is awesome. He's the best thing you could have done to add to the podcast. And so we... It's not about finding a middle ground. And that's where the struggle I have with balance because this isn't about balance because if we try to balance everyone's thoughts and opinions and everything else, we would be juggling and it'd make the show awful. Mm-hmm. So all I can really do is say, I'm absorbing your feedback. I recognize that, but I'm going to do the show that I feel is best. Mm-hmm. The other feedback, Josh, you should really let Ryan talk more. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. Yes, yes. But I came here and shut up the whole time you wouldn't think that, right? Yeah.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you can't please everyone. If you do, you're going to have something that's uh, vanilla. And, you know, vanilla ice cream is great, but mm. it's not everybody's favorite ice cream. Um, few people would say that vanilla is their favorite ice cream. And, uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, like we're producing something that we feel good about, that we're happy with, that um, we feel like can add value to people's lives. And that's, the number one driver. And then yes, when this feedback comes in, um, yeah, sometimes you look at feedback and you're like, oh, that's a good point. Maybe we should, whatever. And then you've got half the audience saying one thing, the other half of the audi- audience saying the other thing. And at that point, you you cannot base whatever uh, whatever you produce off of what the 50-50 split is. Mm-hmm. Um, So yeah, I mean, we do the best we can and it's not for everybody and that's okay.
2: And by the way, what you're saying there is if we tried to change everything based on what everyone else's opinion is, it would stop being, it would cease being compelling to us. And so, this is some feedback I'm providing to the audience here. We are, we, I obsess over this show every single day of my life. I work six and a half days a week. I can confirm that he I, obsesses
4: over everything, not just with the show, but with everything with the minimalist for sure.
2: And <laughs> and I do that not just for me, but because it's so compelling to me. And if I did what everyone else wanted us to do, it would cease to be compelling to me. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the quality of the show would go down dramatically. Because Mm -hmm. if I started doing a show about fashion tips, like I'm not really into fashion, right? It would not be compelling. And that would show in the product. I get worked up during this podcast because it's so compelling to me. Mm -hmm. Like this part of our week is awesome. I would do this every single day. It would just... That would drive the audience crazy if we did three hours of podcasting every day. That was the old uh, Sean Hannity line. I never liked Sean Hannity, but I loved his tagline. It was three hours a day, every day is all we ask. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. And obviously, it was a parodic thing, but like, you know, he's like, we're not asking much, just three hours a day, every day. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so, TK, when we're absorbing this feedback, maybe you can provide some insight here because. I, especially with our private podcast subscribers, take to heart. But quite often, I will get back-to-back feedback where it's like, literally, TK is the best thing you guys have ever done for your podcast and versus, hey, uh, well, why is TK on the podcast now? And it's like, <laughs> right, right. Well, and it's like well, wait a minute. Like, I don't know how to, how to yeah. you know, balance or how to juggle these things. So I kind of have to throw it out and say, what am I compelled by?
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, first of all, shout out to all of the people who have taken the time to welcome
1: me to the podcast. Yay. Shout out to all of the people who have taken the time to say, I like you being on this show. I have nothing negative to think or say about anybody who says, man, I just don't feel the vibes of the show anymore mm. since you brought KD on the team. I get it, I understand. I felt that way about things that I've loved too. And um, I I hope you can give it a chance, but, but I, I hate that we lose you if that's the case. Um, but, um, there, there's definitely something special about the people that point out that, that you do appreciate it. So shout out to y'all first, but man, I mean, well, it, it's, it's a little difficult to talk about cause I can't do it objectively, right? We're, we're talking about something that directly pertains to me, but,
2: but let's, let's, let's make it somewhere objective. Yeah. So. Uh, hey, I love when the show's two hours. No, I, I hate yeah. when it's three hours. I and so like there's yeah. there's this contingent of people where they're like, no, 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 I would watch this for ten hours a week. Yeah. and there are other people who are like, as soon as it goes beyond two hours, it you, you've lost me. And it's like, I get that, right? And so we do yeah. our best to to really make it nutrient dense within two hours. But if it if the conversation warrants three hours, like Doctor Zach Bush. It's going to be 3 hours. I'm not going to cut it short. Yeah. Just to appease someone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I want the 4 hour one today just on the <laughs> weaponized morality, but like
1: um yeah, it's tough. I mean, I've thought about this and and I know this is a more of a uh, kind of a in the weeds type of response, but I've even wondered like is there a way like just how we do the 20 minute version? Is there a way for us to be like, "All right, for everybody that just gets angry if this thing goes beyond two hours, here's your two-hour version, but then here's the raw footage, Mm. you know, here's the raw footage, the full conversation for Mm. the people that just want to roll with it. Um, I've wondered about that. And and, and that would be my ideal, but at the same time, uh, we all have ideals, right? But we have to economize because it takes people's time and resources to execute on these ideals. But that would be my ideal. Um, But I I think it's it's a dance between what feedback you're getting from the people that you serve and what what values make the work worth doing. And I think in any case where you have disagreements amongst the people that you're trying to serve, the arbiter has to be, what's my conviction? What's the part that's interesting to me? Because there are some things that can't be resolved democratically, right? Like you could take a vote and, and half the people can be like, nah, We don't like it longer than two hours. The other half can be like, no, I listened for 10 hours. Well, what's the arbiter? The arbiter is the thing that's going to keep me doing this at all. Mm -hmm. The thing that's going to even put me in a position where y'all can be mad at me or happy with me in the first place is if I'm showing up and there's a fire inside about what I'm doing and what it takes for me to bring that fire is this. And then you got to be willing to let the chips fall because I I do believe there's something to be said about... um, how operating with conviction moves things into place. That people can be attracted to you for a lot of reasons, but there's nothing more attractive than authenticity. And when you're authentic, the people that are for you will gravitate to you. And you'll, all, right. you'll always have people moving in and out of your orbit in life, no matter how you conduct your affairs. Yeah,
4: and not everybody's gonna like you. It's yeah. I mean, that's just how it goes. And if you try to get everyone to like you, then maybe you can get everyone to tolerate you, but they're not gonna like you as much as, you know, those true fans who really, really love what you do. And I love what you said about the fire. So it's like, yeah, what we do uh, is based off of the fire that we have driving us. And, um, you know, if we wanted to do just what our audience wanted, we would just do a bunch of home tours. Like people mm. love the home tours, you know? Mm-hmm. But like, I don't want to just do home tours. I yeah. don't want to be the minimalist home tour, uh, you know, duo or trio or whatever. Like I, I love what we do. Mm-hmm. And like, that's what it comes back to. Um, but I will say one thing, the podcast is too long. You can always just pause it (laughs) as soon as, (laughs) as soon as you want to walk away from it, you can, there's a pause button. You can walk away. You can come back when you want. I mean, I do that all the time with uh, different podcasters who go two, three hours. It's like, I don't necessarily have a three hour chunk of time. Or if I, you know, do the one and a half speed, you know, whatever that works out to be, I don't have that. So sometimes, yeah, I got to pause it and come back to it later. And you know what? Often I don't come back. Because it wasn't that compelling to begin with. It's more of the
2: completionist than me who's like, oh, yeah. I
4: wish I could finish this whole thing.
2: And, and so, yeah, I think that's an important note to bring up, Ryan. I think what you're illustrating there is we as consumers, not as the creators as the minimalist, but when we are consuming something, because mm-hmm. we all consume things, services, experiences, right? Mm-hmm. We usually don't know what we want. Right. Oh, that's, that's the truth. Yeah. And for the longest time, I was like, iPhone, what the heck? Why would I want an iPhone? I need a keyboard on my phone. My Blackberry is awesome. Mm -hmm. Why do I want an iPhone? Well, I didn't know that I wanted an iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. And if I would have gone to Steve Jobs and told him what to do, I I want a bigger keyboard and a bigger Blackberry, essentially, right? And I'll say that if you're listening to this as an audience, you you may not know what you want here because we created something that was appreciably different from anything else you're listening to, right? It's sort of a radio show. It's a call-in show. Mm-hmm. It's uh, sort of a podcast. It's sort of a broadcast. It's all of these different things. It's sort of a TV show now. like It's all of these components. And yes, I agree with Ryan that, you, of course, you could pause it. But the problem that people are having is like, hey, there's, there's some thing that I want to complete each week. And I was really happy completing it when it was two hours, but now Mm. it's three hours. And so I understand, I want you to to know that I respect and understand your preferences, right? But in this case, as a creator, while I will do my best to understand and appreciate those preferences, ultimately I have to default to my own preferences because I want to be compelled to make the show and to be driven because it will show in the final product, the thing that is released, as opposed to just going through the motions, which the, that's going to punish everyone in yeah. the audience.
4: Yeah, and I'll tell you a lot of the times too on podcasts, like I fast forward. I mean, this isn't linear. So you can totally fast forward through different sections. Yeah, um, I do
2: that with Dan Savage each yeah. each week when I'm like, I don't like the question this person asked. I'll just right. move on to the next one, right? Yeah. right? And then you mentioned the home tour thing, Ryan. Like we have incorporated that into our book because it is so popular. We mm-hmm. incorporate it just into the private podcast, which yeah. ironically... It's popular publicly, but then on the private podcast, it's at the end. And so we'll dedicate five minutes an episode to something like a home tour, but it's not going to be the primary focus of what we do. Right. Reminds me of my
1: oft-quoted Howard Thurman quote, ask not yourself what the world needs, but rather what makes you come alive, for ultimately that is what the world needs, people who have come alive. At the end of the day, the possibilities that are born out of love Passion for what you do will far exceed, uh, exceed the possibilities that are born out of a sense of duty.
2: Yeah. Speaking of preferences, Ryan had this idea. We do these YouTube polls every week <laughs> where we do some serious things like, what was your favorite minimal maximum from the episode? Or say, what... There's one thing you're struggling with letting go of. You know, all these different polls that we have, right? And then there's like three or four answers that people can answer on our YouTube channel. And then Ryan was trying to think of ideas when we were doing our little brainstorming meeting. He goes, what about F. Mary Kill? <laughs> I wasn't specifically saying those
4: three words, but something that
2: mirrors that idea. Well, here's all three of us here. We have Joshua Fields Milburn. La LaPrince Coleman, and Ryan Nicodemus. And so, all right. this is for... Actually, you know what? Jordan, you can clip this and make it a YouTube clip, even. We will ask our audience. You got to comment <laughs> below. No! Now, here's <laughs> go, go here, here's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm killing myself immediately. Yeah, me too. In this <laughs> scenario. <laughs> killing you immediately? No, I'm killing, my, I'm killing myself immediately. Oh, wait, I guess we can't make this a YouTube clip now because they censor everyone for the... Actually, we don't have ads, so it doesn't matter. Ha! We don't monetize our YouTube channel That's right. like these other bootlickers. <laughs> um, am I allowed to say that? Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to say that if you do any advertisements on your podcast whatsoever, you're actually part of the problem? You're a bootlicker? Um, anyway. I, I just don't like the taste of leather, Ryan. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's an acquired taste. <laughs> Alright, so you kill yourself. I mean, So F Mary kill, mm-hmm. right? And so, I mean, in this scenario... I kill myself and then let you, I guess you two get married and you get to decide what to do with the body. <laughs> I would, I would,
4: I would kill myself. I would F Josh so I could hold it over his head for the rest of his life. And I married TK cause he's so gosh darn likable.
1: I'm still trying to understand what it is we're doing.
4: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me give you an example. Um, I don't know Cardi B, Brianna, and Roseanne Barr. You have to f you have to make love to one of them. you have to marry one of them and you have to kill one of them. So who would you do? Yeah, I think you meant Who? Rihanna. Rihanna, whatever. What did I say? I, I think Bri- so I did say Rihanna. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah. So it was, it was you don't have to answer. You don't have to answer that. But that's like a high school thing. That like you never did that in high school, man.
1: You ever <laughs> talked never, about that? I never played this game. Oh my god. Anyway. Never, I've never heard of this game. I'm not being pretentious. Yeah. Anyway, but that's, I, I thought that's, it was like a game. bad science fiction writer's name. Yeah. F Mary Kill.
4: No, you. Like, oh, <laughs> you don't have, have to <laughs> answer like the options that I just gave out. But the idea is you have yeah. to choose one of these verbs oh my. for one of these people. You have to. Oh man. So then it's yeah. Anyway. All right. It's up to our audience. Patrons You know when we have to explain the joke, it's not so funny, is it? <laughs> I guess this,
2: <laughs> I suppose this won't be
4: a YouTube video. So patrons
1: <laughs> Man, and, and the timing is so bad. You don't want to talk about killing a
4: celebrity right now.
2: <laughs> oh, oh gosh. So you want to you know think our- you're a celebrity TK? man <laughs> you want you know, to <laughs> you, you know
4: our audience's response to you, (laughs) me, and TK. I I actually don't know. I'm not reading any of these, but if you kill TK, you're racist. Let's just say that. Hey, y'all, don't play this game.
1: Don't play this game. I'm I'm canceling this game. I'm canceling it. Don't play this
2: game. I'm so pious. He's weaponized his morality once again. (laughs) Speaking of weaponized morality, Malabama, do you know what time of the episode it is? (laughs)
3: It is time for TK's tweet of the week. Yeah. Uh,
1: we hey, have something here. People tell me if y'all wanted more of what I wanted. I wanted more time on weaponized morality. Hey, but we I, want more I, of that I, too, man. We'll TK, it, I'm this sure. is this is if the thing with time management.
4: This is the get thing with tweet. time management. Is that we, we have to pick and choose how we manage our time. And know, uh, thank we, God Josh is here to keep the training. Okay, we're currently
2: 45 minutes over in the episode. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you could just keep it on track, that'd be great, TK. Y'all got (laughs) to let us come back and discuss this because
1: we opened up a very polemic can of worms that's got a lot of people talking right now. Mm -hmm. And and, and I've listened to a lot of the conversations and I think there's some super important things that are not being said. Most of what's being said falls under the banner of what is fashionable and what is predictable. Mm -hmm. And man, I would love to Dude, we'll, do, it we'll
4: do. do we'll do a podcast on it. It's great. We'll hey, let's time. keep them salivating, man. Yeah, they gotta. They gotta want more. TK, you <laughs> can't give it all
2: to them. Here's how the podcast works. We talk uh, about something. I know how it works. It man. opens just... up a door, mm-hmm. and that door then creates... leads us into a future podcast episode. Yes, and
4: it also creates okay, an opportunity. Enough. Fair enough. It also creates an opportunity for people at home listening to this, or driving in their car, or whatever it is. It creates an opportunity for them to have this conversation with their friends and family. I mean. They don't ha- we don't have to talk about everything, but fair uh, I would like to create an opportunity out of every single podcast for someone to go to their friend or family member and be like, you know what they were talking about this week on The Minimalist Podcast? Yeah, what fair do you enough. think
2: about this? Fair enough. If uh, you have a question about anything to do with weaponized morality, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. We'll do a whole podcast episode about weaponized morality. Mm-hmm. TK, your tweet of the week comes from someone. You already handed it to me. Oh, did I give it to him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, nice. It comes
1: from one Peyton Elroy. I wish I had a button I could push where when I say her name, there's like an applause. Give it up for Peyton Elroy. There we go. All right. All right, Peyton, here is the tweet. Every, It's not even an anti-government tweet. Man. It's got you nothing really, to do with If it's government. not, then you really let me down this week, man. <laughs> Don't, don't turn it off, everybody. Okay. From Peyton Elroy. Every time. It just says let's go,
4: Brandon. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no. Brian's triggered all of a sudden. <laughs> from
4: from uh, uh Brandon's Twitter. <laughs> it's
1: about how government can't make you happy. You know, no, 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 seriously. From right. Peyton Elroy. Mm-hmm. Every time you give energy to ghosts, Oh, and- I'm sorry, we're out of time. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Moving on to the
0: next segment. <laughs> Oh, all right, man. TK, for
1: real, for real. For all right, ready? <clears throat> Take four, take four. All right, Peyton, Peyton. Peyton Elroy. Every time you give energy to ghosts and hurts of the past, you choose suffering in that moment. The past is relevant for perspective, but it is gone and not relevant for peace. Peace can be found in any moment if you actively choose it. Dwelling is suffering. Accepting is peace.
2: We were talking about accepting earlier. And, you know, it's part of the serenity prayer. It's part of you know, a lot of Hindu practices as well. Mm-hmm. I was walking yesterday through the tennis courts at the athletic club that I go to. And there are all these little maxims on the sidewalk. And uh, one of them said, let go of, accept one thing that you can't control today and you'll experience more peace. Whew. That's good. Uh, And if you just accept one thing that is outside of your control, not everything. I mean, it'd be great if you could. But like, what's one thing that you can't control, that you are just clinging to, you're struggling with? It's interrupting your serenity. It's interrupting your peace. Unfortunately, we try to pursue peace, which is one of the most absurd things that mm -hmm. we can do in our lives because peace is not out there. We try to add more things to give us more peace, there's no such thing as more peace. It is either peaceful or it is not peaceful. With How to Write Better, I've been doing this Terrible Words series. And colloquially, we often talk about things like, oh, you know, TK, he's a very unique human being. Mm-hmm. Well, that's technically not true. You are either unique or you are not unique. Something can't be sort of unique. Because mm. unique means to be of itself, unlike anything else, right? Mm-hmm. That's like saying the poison is very fatal. What mm. as opposed to what? Kind of fatal. Yeah. Either way, you're dead.
6: He's only mostly dead. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Oh shoot. And yeah. and so we we often have these these binaries. And I think one of the things that we don't talk about though, TK, with respect to the, a tweet like this is, I think most of us just don't value peace anymore. We mm. we consider it to be boredom. But what if I were to reframe that boredom as peace? Mm. Yeah. It makes me think of something, I
1: believe it was St. Augustine who talked about evil and good, and he and he says evil is not a thing in and of itself, but it is the privation or absence of good. So when we look at something and we say, well, that's evil, what we really mean is there's something good that we wish we were observing, and it's absent, right? So if someone just walks up to you, arbitrarily punches you in the face, and I'm inclined to say that's evil, it's because I have an image of the good, namely that... A good scenario is when someone respects your body, you respect their body, and you're able to interact with one another respectfully. And what I'm observing is the absence of that. And in a similar way, we could say that peace is the thing and disturbance is the non-thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. peace is kind of like that default natural state that's Mm -hmm. characterized by the absence of disturbance, which is why so many people find peace when they meditate, Mm -hmm. because They're not analyzing the past. They're not regretting what they did yesterday. They're not trying to plan out what they're going to do tomorrow. They're just being there and kind of like getting in that gap, so to speak, between the thoughts, as Wayne Dyer would describe it. And they feel a peace, not because they went out and grabbed something that wasn't already inside them, but they let go of this none thing, mm-hmm. so to speak, right? And and they allow the waters to settle. And just like when you look at the ocean, right? When the waters settle, you can kind of see what's always been there, but just kind of been covered up by the waves. And that's kind of how I see yes. peace. And And what I love about this tweet is that she is able to so eloquently articulate the power of letting go of the past without being dismissive of the past. She's leaving that room for you to hang on to what's valuable because you can be invalidating and be like, just get over it. Just let it go. Just stop talking about the past. But no, there's a piece of the past that's worth me holding on to forever. It's the piece that strengthened me. It's the piece that contributed to my self-actualization and my self-discovery. But then there is an aspect of it that is worth letting go. And it is namely that aspect that is keeping me from continuing to evolve. Lastly, this also makes the case for why it's worth saying timeless truths over and over again in your own way. Sometimes people dismiss things that they already know uh, under the banner of, well, we already know that. Peace comes from within. Let go of the past. We already know all this stuff. But yeah, but when you have an epiphany, it's not because you're getting new information. It's because you're reframing what you already knew in the light that is provided to you by some unique way of putting it, some unique way of articulating it. That's why I love this articulation of this timeless truth.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great tweet, man. Um, it makes me think about how recently uh, I've been, you know, telling myself the whole, uh, you know, if I worry about something that might happen tomorrow, I'm worrying about that right now. And let's say tomorrow it does happen. At that point, I'm worrying about it twice. Hmm. And this is pointing out, like, you can actually worry about it three times yes, <laughs> before yeah. it happens, when it happens, and after it happens. Yes. And uh, any anything worrying about anything other than in the moment is probably not going to serve you as well as you think it does.
2: Yeah, there's the real fear, the real danger of immediate danger mm-hmm. if you're under threat of something, right? If someone pulls out a knife on you on the street, yes, it makes sense to worry about that. <laughs> but when we start as she says in the tweet, dwelling, dwelling is just mental clinging. Mm. We're clinging to something that happened or We're clinging on the way that we expect things to happen Mm. in the future. Come on. You know what? We got a little segment here. And I'm I'm really this one's a mass it or trash it or obsolete objects. Or what is the other one? Oh, impulse purchases, sort of combining them. If you have a obsolete object, a master trash it, or an impulse purchase that you want to ask us about, you can email it to podcast at the I've just been calling this segment obsolete objects now because I didn't want to do a bunch of different segments. But if you have something different, feel free to send it to us, podcast at the We have one from Victoria, and we have a picture here of her slide projector. What does she have to say, (gasps) Alabama?
3: Yes, she said my husband's late father gave him a large box containing a slide projector and 10 carousels of family slides. Mm -hmm. At first, we were keen to take a look, but instead suffered through a poor viewing of one carousel as the projector wasn't working properly. I got the projector fixed, but we haven't viewed the slides since. I'm not really willing to spend hours to find a few that are worthy to convert into photos. My husband doesn't have many, if any, photos of his family, though. And he's not making an effort to view all the sides either. Should mm. we keep yeah. it, get rid of it? What do yeah, you do?
4: I thought oh. it was the boxes at first. And it's funny because, like, I know I'm old because, like, I'll get, you know, a package delivered to me. And it's, like, a good box. Mm. And my... my you know, impulsiveness in, inside of me is like, hey, man, that's a good box. You should hang on to that.
2: And I'm like, you have to be over 40 <laughs> to get that impulse, right? <laughs>
4: no. I might use that box one day.
2: <laughs> no, because my daughter's nine and has that same impulse. Is, that's a good box. You got to hold on to that. Mm. Yeah, I, I would actually say that that's more of a, it's a clinging mentality, right? It is, yeah. And that's the problem we have here. TK said something really brilliant a few weeks ago. He He said... That was the last time he said anything brilliant. <laughs> no, he he really he, he startled me with this one because he said if it's not worth sorting through, it's not worth holding on to. Oh yeah. And I love that. I would say the same thing about our photos. So Ryan and I have something called the Scanning Party. It's part of the Minimalist Rule Book. You can download it for free over at theminimalists.com. Mm-hmm. There's 16 rules for living with less. One of them has to do with the photo scanning aspect of letting go. Because what happens inevitably as the years or decades go by, we end up with basements or attics or closets full of boxes of photographs, or even worse, we put them in photo albums Mm. and then force those photo albums onto our company and say, hey, you got a a TK, I really want you to see my vacation in Hawaii. Look, 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 look how special my vacation was. And no one really enjoys that, except here's one exception. When you get a digital picture frame, for some reason, it becomes a magnet for viewers. I guess it's just the glowing screen effect, right? Because if you have company over and you have a digital picture frame, all of a sudden people are like, hey, is that your trip to Hawaii? Mm-hmm. But if I showed you the same trip in a photo album, you'd be like, get this away from me. I'll very nicely go through the pictures with you or whatever. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, the screen itself is more compelling. So photo scanning party, you can check that out in the minimalist rule book. Mm-hmm. This is something similar. to This is adjacent to that. This is, and I did some research on this. So there are quite a few articles on how to transfer 35 millimeter slides to Mm. digital. And that's the problem that Victoria is going through here. So I'm going to put a link to this one in the show notes. Uh, This gentleman, his website is called travelthroughpictures.com. And he was like, hey, what do I do with my entire library of 35 millimeter slides? I have roughly... 3,000 slides in a box and loaded onto Kodak carousels. That's what this is. I got to get them to digital. In short, I used my Kodak carousel projector to backlight the slides and shot them with my DSLR because there are a bunch of things you can do. You can send them out to get scanned, which can be a bit pricey. You can buy a used scanner and then scan all the slides, which Ryan and I do with the scanning party. Mm-hmm. We feed photos into a scanner. You can even see what scanner we use over at theminimalists.com slash scanning. But we uh, we did that with photos. But what I liked about this solution is he actually just took, he, he set up a way to take pictures of everything. But you would only do that if what? If they're worth sorting through in the first place. Mm. I've got one last thing. This is, happened to be perfect, perfect timing. So our friends over at scanmyphotos.com, they sent me this tweet. It said, hey, JFM, Big decluttering news. The most astonishing photography uh, archiving innovation since we pioneered bulk photo scanning is days away. Digitizing 35 millimeter slides will forever change. Stay tuned. And then so what they're doing now is the folks over at scanmyphotos.com who have been scanning photos since 1990. Oh, wow. They are now scanning these... A digital 35 millimeter slides. And so I retweeted this. I said, wow, I just Googled how to digitize 35 millimeter slides an hour ago for a podcast listener, Victoria. Then I got this tweet. I'm going to talk about it on episode 365 of The Minimalists. By the way, this is not an ad. Advertisements still suck. Mm-hmm. I'm not affiliated with scanmyphotos.com, but I like them. <laughs> oh, I it's, love that. It's funny how like we have to preface that a lot with this isn't an
4: ad this isn't an ad but i mean our, i think you know our our uh patrons know that we're not doing ads but someone on the outside listening i could see why we preface it with like okay this isn't an ad yeah you know yeah. um so we did the digitizing of um some stuff for lesses now and man I, so i used to do it myself because i didn't really trust other people to do it but with lesses now like i found a company in la who you know was pretty reputable had good ratings Oh, it's so it's so it's so easy like you drop it off mm-hmm. they do it for you and then you have your digitized version they'll throw the old ones away if you want they'll give you the old ones back if you want yeah but yeah i mean what cracks me up about this though is that the slide projection photo album like it was a cliche on how much kids friends family members how much they hated to sit down and go the only people who get joy out of this is the person who's clicking <laughs> and telling the stories about where they were on vacation or whatever it was. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just there's something ironic about how this has never been cool. Yeah.
1: <laughs> something that you can do is you can throw like a viewing party. If no one signs up for it or shows up, then no one has a say on your decision to throw it away. And you can mm. make that known ahead of time. Ooh, that's good. And if anyone does show up, then they get to say, that one, that one. Oh, let's keep that one. And then you'll know at the end of the viewing party which photos you want to take the time to keep. But if no one shows up,
2: no one really cares. Yeah, let it go. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We're going to move on to advertisements. suck. A little segment we do where we talk about a sucky ad. Someone sent us this one. Carla did. This is the adult Happy Meal. And here's let me, let me just say this first. In fact, can I get that iPad so TK and Ryan can see it. If you're watching the video version of the podcast or the live stream, you'll see it here above my left shoulder. But this is not technically an advertisement. And when I say advertisements suck, I am being really specific. This sucks for another reason because you're selling poison and repackaging it with as fun. And I was talking to Bex about this yesterday, my wife. And you know, at one point McDonald's was actually a relatively healthy establishment. Sure. Before we were born, or certainly before 1992, when they started using... These, all the bad oils, yeah, all the terrible seed oils, and actually the oils that have been outlawed now because they're so awful. They used to use tallow in their deep fryers, which I would argue that you still don't want to deep fry anything with tallow. But hey, it's better than the way better than the seed oils. But also, at one point in time when they started, they were similar to Bel, how what Belcampo was. It was mm. grass fed beef and nutrient dense foods. Yeah. But when you scale at that level, I don't know how many McDonald's there are in the world now, but Tens of thousands of them, mm-hmm. it becomes difficult to be conscientious yeah. of health. And now, what you start doing because profits become the primary driver. I'm not against profits. I'm not against capitalism, but I am against letting money sit in the driver's seat with the foot to the f- uh, pedal, the pedal to the floor. And that is now creeping into our everyday lives. And so you see this McDonald's is releasing an adult happy meal. Here's when it comes out. The meal includes trippy versions of nostalgic favorites. And so an adult happy meal is what exactly? Well, a 10 piece nugget or Big Mac medium fry and a medium drink with a toy. Yeah, this is, uh... a. <clears throat> It's
4: genius <laughs> in the way of like this is great advert. Which, by the way, I think I have seen an advertisement for it.
2: Um, yeah, I'm just saying what they sent us is not actually an
4: advertisement. Oh, I got you. It's yeah. a
2: picture of a of
4: a of a adult happy meal. Well, I mean, it's genius of them in the sense that we all, in some way, shape, or form, uh, especially me. I'll speak for myself. I I want to hang on to my youth as long as I can, mm. and um. It's a real thing that I, you know, struggle to let go of. Um, I, you know, I, I, I've, I think uh, maybe I hold on to it in a in a healthy-ish way, which that might be a whole other podcast too, hanging on to our youth. But, mm. but the clinging to it, clinging to it, yeah. So, um, the adult Happy Meal, what they've done is they know that like our generation grew up, like that's when they introduced the kids Happy Meal. And there is this warm, fuzzy feeling when you get that, you know, cheeseburger and small fry and the little little plastic toy that breaks, you know, a week later. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and they're like, they're using nostalgia to get adults to go and buy some really unhealthy food. So, I mean, that's probably the biggest problem I have with it. But this isn't a judgment on anyone who gets an adult Happy Meal. It's more about like McDonald's just using our... It's like pulling on our heartstrings to like get us to go and spend money at at McDonald's. Yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah, I, I don't imagine anyone who doesn't like McDonald's now
1: is going to be like, "Oh man, I'm I'm going to McDonald's now. They got yeah. the Happy Meal. I want, right. I, want, I want the toy that comes with the food that I don't like." Yeah. I imagine this is going to be people who already go to McDonald's. Uh, but who, like you said, might be buying the nostalgia that they're selling. One of the interesting things about the profit motive is that when you do something for the money, you stop doing it when the money stops. And so I'm super curious to see Mm. what happens. Like, is this generation nostalgic enough to 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 warrant that, McDonald's is making a bet. They, they, they've probably done their research and they made some assumptions and some inferences. And it's gonna be really interesting to see if this is something that takes off. If people are like, Yeah, I love having my toy, or if it's something that McDonald's pulls back on in like six months, it wasn't profitable. But yeah. it but it is an interesting kind of way of looking at what what they think of this generation and what what will make this generation happy, like a, a toy. It's it's kind of fascinating.
4: Well, yeah, to me, it says that they think our generation, um, you know, we're still a kid at heart, which sounds good. But to me, it's, you know, that could also be taken a different way. Um, But, you know, I just noticed here, too, they're playing on the uh, scarcity aspect of it, too. So October 3rd until whatever, Mm -hmm. um, that's when you can get your adult Happy Meal. But you're right. If it does really, really well, you'll probably see it come back. I was think some people say this is kind of like why we work
1: or like Google campuses took off like like an off you can't have an office space now without a pool table or without a keg of beer or without toys because it's a generational thing. Mm. of people want to have the opportunity to kind of be a kid at work. Mm. I, don't, I, I don't I don't I haven't looked delved into that topic or analyzed it thoroughly,
4: but it just makes me think of that man, we should do a podcast on
2: clinging to our youth. Mm. yeah, and by the way, you know, it's been said for thousands of years. You, Jesus talked about if you want to experience heaven, you have to become a child again. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's that. But we're you can also use it pejoratively like this isn't what a child does. This is marketing that is originally designed to coerce children to drag their parents into a fast food establishment. And this is why 40 percent of Americans eat fast food daily. That's insane. It's poison. 40%? This is not that, healthy food. Man. And it's not even food. It's food like products mm-hmm. and it's calorie dense. Uh, but calories are a terrible way to measure. It's not calories in, calories out. That's like measuring your food with square inches. How many square inches of food do you have today? Mm. Why does that matter, right? It's what kind of calories you're putting in your body that's inflammatory, that is spiking your insulin, that's causing diabetes. A tremendous amount of the population is either diabetic or pre diabetic at this point. Mm -hmm. And it's because, I mean, it's in correlation at least with the amount of junk food that we are eating. And we're doing it out of nostalgia or out of convenience. And it is quite literally killing us. It's so crazy to me how, like, a lot of uh
4: political arguments. So one side talking about the other side saying, well, this other side hurts kids. And what what they're proposing is gonna hurt our children. And and they do this to each other. Right. But what blows my mind is like no one's talking about what you know, what, what our fast food is doing to our kids. No mm-hmm. one's talking about the YouTube advertisements that are affecting our kids.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's selective
4: outrage. It is selective outrage. And it's funny because like I guarantee you, like children with diabetes is a much bigger problem than, um, you know, put in hot topic there where some kids, you know, lost their lives or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. or their lives were endangered um, or they were abused or whatever it is. Like diabetes, children, diabetes, onset diabetes is a much bigger problem than all of this little trivial stuff that we kind of tit for
2: tat. And it is something that we can affect. It's something that we can control. But I mean, most of us, I thought that, I was eating vegetables every time I ate French fries from McDonald's when I was growing up. I mm. thought, well, I mean, technically it's a vegetable. Mm. And cooked in vegetable oil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when we were kids it wasn't actually. It was uh, it was cooked in tallow, which okay. was yeah, a little bit better for us. But the, the the problem is that like everything that we've been told is either a lie or it is not the truth. And and I quite I, I mean virtually everything. Uh, where you know we've been told, you know, salads are healthy for us or whatever, and we'll go down that rabbit hole a different episode. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot of fancy marketing that is there to sell us an agenda,
0: mm-hmm.
2: not to enhance our living experience while we're on this earth. So, so what we gotta do there is we got to find a
1: political party that we can pin this on and be like, see, this is what the conservatives want. Right, exactly. This is what the progressives want. And
4: then everybody will
1: start hating on it. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) This is what the Green Party
4: wants anyway. Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) Unfortunately, all the parties want this because, I mean, there is an aspect to the freedom of choice when it comes to food. And you know what? We got the freedom to eat Twinkies and McDonald's every single day if we want. And that's my right as an American, gosh darn
2: it. (laughs) I saw Twinkies (laughs) in the Constitution. (laughs) <laughs> it's time for our Photo Friday home tour. Yeah. Little yeah, segment we do here on the private podcast. You, go, you can hand that over to me. Oh. Just pass it to TK. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll take that again. That was so great. That was so great. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh it's time for our Photo Friday home tour, A little podcast segment we do here on the private podcast. We usually go into one of our homes. I just got some great photos from TK. I think we'll be exposing him next week. (laughs) TK exposed. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, we were in the studio last week and we came up with this new rule. I'm... I first was calling it the reverse packing party rule because when Ryan did his packing party, which you saw in our last Netflix documentary, he boxed up all his things as if he were moving. He spent the next 21 days unpacking only the items he needed, right? So he's kind of hid all of his possessions. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that's what we do in our houses with our drawers and our cabinets and our credenzas and other spaces that hide our clutter, our closets, our attics, et mm. And so I'm calling this the out in the open rule. And it's a reverse packing party for your stuff that is hidden. We came into the studio. Ryan was here. Professor Sean was here. Malabam was here. I was here. And what we did is we emptied out our little closet over here that keeps all of our equipment, our cables, our pens, our pencils, our paper, our envelopes, our tissues, anything that we use regularly or think we might use regularly, Mm -hmm. we keep it stored away in these drawers, right? And so if you'll see, when we put it all here on the floor, TK, and if you're watching the video version of this on the private podcast, you'll see it above my left shoulder here. We sent this photo to you last Friday as well. Nice. We got everything on the floor, Mm -hmm. everything out of the cabinets, literally everything, emptied them out completely. We got everything, what? Out in the open. Yeah. Hence, the name for this is the out in the open rule. And as soon as we put everything out in the open, what did it do? It forced us to deal with everything because we're going to either have to put it away. There are a few things we were able to sell. Mm -hmm. Most of the things we'll either donate or a few things we're actually holding on to trash. Why, why? We're the minimalist. Why do we have all this stuff? So if you're looking at the photo here on the screen, or if you just listen to the audio version, I'll I'll say a few things we have here. Like we had a few mic stands. Obviously, we use those regularly. We had some cleaning solution. We use that. And then there was a bunch of like extra cables, this pile of cables in the back. It's like, hey, we never use these cables. Here's another pile of things that we used to use, but we don't use them anymore. And so getting everything out in the open, I applied this to my home last week and because I was talking to Ella about everything that she owns and she's like, I just love stuff. (laughs) And, and and I'm like, do you use some of your stuff? I use all of it. I play with all of it. I'm like, really? And like, we start getting some stuff out and I'm like, when's the last time you played that? Oh, I don't play with that anymore. And as soon as she realized that it took away the clinging, you get it out in the open and sunlight, Becomes the metaphorical disinfectant here. As soon as you see it, I don't need to hold on to this anymore. I can let it go. And it made putting the things back so much more manageable, didn't oh it, Oh, my
3: gosh. Yes, it was very satisfying to be able to reorganize those cabinets because there were so many things that were useful a year ago or, you know, six months ago. But our needs change over time. The studio changed. All of our preferences kind of got tweaked a little bit. That was incredibly helpful for my OCD.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I found that doing this at home, even with relatively organized closets or drawers or whatever, getting the thing out of its normal environment, out of your clothes closet, even though, yes, I wear those things sometimes, getting it out, putting it on the floor, getting that linen closet, everything out of it, just throwing it on the floor. Okay, what do I actually want? Now that it's out in the open, what do I want to put away? What do I want to hold on to? What am I going to get value from? And what do I need to get rid of right now? Because it is simply getting in the way of the things that add value.
0: The question stands.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because if it's not adding value to my life, it's clutter. And the thing that wasn't clutter a year ago might be clutter today. Mm. Clutter simply means that it's getting in the way. So one man's clutter is not clutter for the next man. Mm. One woman's clutter is not clutter for the next woman, right? And so by bringing it out in the open, I'm able to more easily let it go. Why? Because I can't just hide it. It's not out of sight, out of mind. It's in sight. It's in my mind right now. And it's creating the mental clutter until I get rid of it. Mm like an unripened banana that becomes
1: ripe and edible and like a gallon of milk that becomes spoiled. Clutter can become valuable treasure. Valuable treasure can become clutter because all things change with time.
4: Mm. You could do this with relationships. Get all your friends in a room.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thats you're wondering why I gathered you all here today. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh man, it's you know what? It's interesting though because um, obviously that's a joke. You're not know, going to invite all your friends over so you could pick and choose who you want to hang out with. But there is some truth in uh, doing that
2: with relationships. For me, yeah. it's the best new rule of decluttering that we've come up with since the 16 rules for living with less. It's great, which you can download for free over at theminimalists.com. But We've introduced some new rules since then as well, like the didn't know rule, but that actually pairs well with this. So if you get everything out in the open, quite often it's like, I didn't know I owned this. I didn't know I owned this, but now it's out in the open. And if you didn't know you owned it, that's another sign to mm. go ahead and let it go. Because I didn't miss it before. I'm not going to miss it now. You know, we're going to appease TK Coleman on this episode. We're going over. We got some questions in the live chat. So we're going over on time. Before we get to our added value segment, our right here, right now segment, let's get let's check in with the chat. Patrons, drop your questions and comments in the chat. Alabama. what do you got for us?
3: Coming in from Lindsay with an A. She asks, when budgeting, do you keep your budget categories as few or as detailed as possible?
4: Hmm. I keep like, personally, I keep my budgeting categories pretty broad, but I mean, obviously inside those categories, it's going to be very granular because you're literally listening, especially with every dollar. The whole idea is you have a plan for every single dollar that you bring in that month. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's all, pro- I imagine Josh would be way more detailed than me with, <laughs> <laughs> with lists. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of perspectival, right? Like it is. It depends on what works for you. Like I literally have, you know, probably twelve categories. And then I've got one that's miscellaneous mm-hmm. because there's something that I'll have to purchase where I'm like, oh, I don't have a category for this to go into. But then I also find myself throwing a lot of things in the miscellaneous and I use it as a catch all, mm-hmm. which sometimes kind of hurts the budget. But um, that could be a
2: problem, yeah. right? Yeah. And and so once you realize that it becomes a problem, then you can start to say, okay, maybe I could keep the miscellaneous, but instead of 12 categories, I need 15 because there are these three things I keep putting in miscellaneous, right? However, I'm a big fan of simplifying because you're right. I could be meticulous and, well, every expense has a separate category at some point or because it's slightly <laughs> different. It's right. like, well, I bought a desk chair last month, but then I also bought a spatula. And so this one goes in the spatula category. And <laughs> and it becomes nonsense, right? And it becomes so cumbersome that it discourages you from using it. Now, Mm -hmm. we do this with Ellis, and she's nine, and she started her own business, and she's walking dogs. Every $5 that she makes, we use the envelope system. And uh, this is what Rachel Cruz wrote about in her book um, with Smart Money, Smart Kids, Mm -hmm. and she wrote with her father, Dave Ramsey. And Basically, it's three envelopes. Every time Ella makes five bucks, which she so she goes walk a, do- a dog, she gets $5. And we put it, you put two bucks in your saving envelope. You're saving, she wants to buy a horse someday. <laughs> um, I love uh, that. Yeah, and so like she's going, too. and then you have $2 for the spending. So you can spend it on the crystals or the ring that you want. That's your spending money, right? Mm-hmm. And then $1 to giving.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So you have saving, spending and giving and you have those every five dollars you make it automatically goes into those three envelopes and she's constantly counting the money out. oh i've got thirty dollars now that i can give to other people right and she'll ask sometimes well, why do i have to give this away I'm like, you, you don't have to do anything <laughs> right but is it helpful when someone helps you out when when they give you when they support you mm. and she's like well no not really I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> can I just give this money to myself? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, really? So like when someone buys, you know, your dinner, like the dinner you just ate, that doesn't help. Oh, she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't buy that. Mm-hmm. And she realizes like, oh, OK, some people need money because their needs aren't being met. This has to do with your want. Yeah, you want to buy a horse, but people need food. And so understanding that habit, and it doesn't need 12 or 50 different categories. You have three there. I'm saving, I'm spending, or I'm contributing. And then from there, you can have subcategories. And and I I think understanding what works well for you, but if you can explain it to a nine-year-old, generally, that's what we need. (laughs) We need the budget that a nine-year-old can stick to. Mm. But what do we do? We try to make it so complex that We just throw our hands up and say, I forget about it. So when do you teach her the lesson of taxes? You just like go
4: in and like just take money out of the envelopes?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Property tax. I drag her out of her room. I lock her up for six months. (laughs) You come rushing out on Holloway oh, with a mask,
4: screaming. <laughs> oh, God! Oh, that's great. That's great she's old enough to get stuff like that now. That's really yeah. cool, man.
2: I have the monopoly of violence in this house. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> hey, oh,
1: my b- goodness. By the way, um, great illustration built into that story of why it's important to respect the dreams you have today, even though they might evolve at some point in the future. Because when she gets enough money to buy a horse... By the time that day gets here, she might decide that she wants to use that money on something else. But the current horse dream is useful because that's what motivates the person that she is today to actually get to that point. Mm, So um, that's great. What I would say about the budget, be as detailed as you need to be in order for the budget to be useful. Mm -hmm. Be as simple as you need to be in order to motivate yourself to actually use it. If it's so detailed that you're feeling overwhelmed and it makes you say, I'm not going to do this, then that's too much detail. And if it's so simple that you're not actually moving the needle, keeping track of important things, then that's not detailed enough. I I recommend a system of evolving simplicity. Start with income and expenses. And typically as you're notating things, you will reveal to yourself the natural categories that you use when thinking about your expenses. You'll be like, what are my bills? What I got to pay? Oh, I got to pay my utilities. Oh, I got to pay my rent or my mortgage. And, and write it down. And, and if you see clear and obvious ways to group things together, go with that. Go with what feels intuitive for you. And if not, let, let it reflect how you think about it when you're writing it down. But that would be
2: my recommendation. Let's check in with the uh, live stream again. What else we got?
3: We have another budgeting question from Ava. She asks, what is the easiest way to budget for unexpected expenses? And how do the minimalists handle this?
2: Mm, Depends what you mean by unexpected, right?
4: Yeah. Is it an emergency? Or is it like,
2: uh, oh, no, my tire went... Well, like I said, it's still an emergency. If your tire goes flat, you need to replace the tire. Yes, that's an emergency. And so I have an emergency fund of six Mm -hmm. months worth of... of Basic bills. This Mm -hmm. isn't six months of extravagance and eating out. I mean, we don't really go to any restaurants anymore. Mm -hmm. But what I have is six months of our basic necessities. Right. So if an emergency does happen and my transmission goes out, I'm going to have to pay for that. But I can pay for it because I spent the time. Over several years building up an emergency fund. And the key to that, though, is to not spend your emergency fund on non emergencies because most emergencies aren't. And if you can afford to pay for that transmission without the emergency fund, you do that. The emergency fund is there. For emergencies, and if you don't have the money already from your normal income, and I think that's right. an important thing to think about. Because if I do have to dip into my emergency fund to fix my trans transmission, then I still have to go pay that back. I'm right. I'm essentially loaning myself money from the emergency fund that that's I now right. have to spend the time over the next three, six, eight months to replenish. Yes. I will tell you this: I'm doing a few things right now. I'm saving up money for one is a medical procedure that I need, stem cells, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
2: and then beyond that there are like some smaller things that we would really like for the house that aren't emergencies. I could dip into my emergency fund and we want to get a shed eventually because right Mm -hmm. now we're paying for a little storage space on the outskirts of town Mm -hmm. where Bex keeps her camping equipment because I don't want it just strewn throughout our house. And so we would like a little shed in our backyard and so we're saving up some money for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are getting a cold plunge. We're saving up some money for that. Mm -hmm. Eventually we want to get a sauna. We're going to save up money for that next year Mm -hmm. so we can get a sauna. And that's budgeting yeah. for something that's going to happen in the future. Now, the alternative would be what? I I could go get a loan for all that stuff right now. I could gratify myself immediately and put my future self in immediate debt. And then what happens if I have a real emergency, right? Now all of a sudden I've got the debt to tackle and I've got all of the other emergencies I'd have to, to deal with at the same time. I'm adding undue stress. Instead, just wait for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can always wait for it. Um, yeah, I was going to make a joke about,
4: well, if you didn't plan for the emergency, then uh, you just can't, you can't spend that money. (laughs) Like too bad. But, but, but to your point though, yeah, wait, see if you see if it actually is an emergency. I mean, some things obviously you're going to know right away. Um, but that's where the miscellaneous kind of helps me out though, is like, I I do about 5% of uh, my income in the miscellaneous and it, So so I'm planning for these like miscellaneous expenses that Mariah or I didn't think of. So there's a little bit of money there. And if it goes above and beyond, then yeah, I have an emergency fund that I can totally dip into. That's
1: right. I mean, I think you guys said it. I mean, there's a clear distinction between un... Unanticipated splurges and unanticipated expenses, right? When it comes to unanticipated splurges, the, the answer is discipline, mm. you know, defer gratification. But when it comes to unanticipated expenses, you got to prepare for that because those are simply things that need to be given attention, uh, that, that you don't have the income flexibility to deal with. Mm. One thing I'll add, just because uh, this question is an age specific, Younger people tend to have a a harder problem um, prioritizing both emergency and savings because they have a greater sense of invulnerability. Oh, what's going to happen to me? Harder Mm -hmm. to imagine being sick or disabled. And also retirement seems so far away, it's hard to motivate them to save. And so I like to use the concept of emergency fund, Mm -hmm. emergency funds to motivate young people to save in a way that is relatable for them. And that is what happens when you reach a breaking point where you feel like, I got to quit this job. Mm. I got to go follow my passion and do something amazing that makes me come alive. Well, think about the emergency fund, like a level two emergency fund. Think about it also as something that empowers you to be able to make authentic choices because you have the ability to do things for a few months without that paycheck that you've become accustomed to. Love it. Mm -hmm. What else we got in Alabama?
3: We have a question from Yaman. He asks, is it disingenuous to hold on to items from a previous relationship when you're in a different one? For example, gifts, letters, etc. from an ex. Ooh. Yeah.
4: I I mean, if Mariah had a box of like ex-boyfriend pictures and letters and memorabilia, like if it's adding value to her life, great. Like, I don't I don't care.
2: Yeah. I mean, Um, my wife has a kid from a previous relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. She keeps holding on to it too. It's ridiculous. (laughs) But
4: you know, it's interesting. He's asking this question like, is this causing you stress right now? Because it sounds like it might be. And if it's causing stress, Mm. the question is, is like, you know, the true cost of hanging on to this, is it worth what it's creating in your life? Mm. Is it creating more joy or is it creating more stress?
2: Um, That's what I would look at, but there's no right or wrong answer to that. Yeah, I mean, why am I holding on to something from a previous relationship? Mm. Thankfully, most of my previous relationships, except for one, and Ryan knows exactly who I'm talking about, I think they'd all give me five stars on Yelp. And my, maybe two. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yes, yeah, that that's that's fair. Um thankfully the uh, the law of averages here. I'm still a 4.9 on uh on Dick Yelp. Yeah, um, right right right. right. <laughs> yeah, your Uber rating is still a yeah, 4.95. Yeah. <laughs> and um I have outstanding memories from those relationships, mm-hmm. but it didn't require holding on to some memorabilia from Those relationships. I would not mistake memorabilia for memories. However, Mm -hmm. if you're in a previous relationship and they gave you a cast iron skillet that you happen to use every day, that's not a sentimental item necessarily. It is merely a useful item. And what would be disingenuous in that scenario, Mm -hmm. Yaman, would be, I'm going to get rid of this cast iron skillet and replace it with the same cast iron skillet, but it's not from... Tanya, who gave me the skillet. That's a great Mm. analogy.
1: I like that. I hope that in giving you my opinion, I will either sway you my way or motivate you to double down on what you know you already do. I make a distinction between what I demand of myself and what I demand of others, right? And how I handle situations might vary for each. If it's someone that I'm with and that's something that they need to hold on to, the only empowered state from which I can act is to let them be. If I find myself in a position of trying to control them, getting them to throw that old relic away because of what it does to me, it's just going to make me anxious. It's just going to make them feel controlled and it creates nothing but problems. So when it comes to other people, I mind my own business. When it comes to me, I wouldn't hold on to something like that, not because I believe it's disingenuous, but because it compromises my psychological availability to the person that I'm with. For every moment that I'm spending on the past, reading a letter written to me by somebody I'm not dating anymore, looking at a picture of somebody that I'm not with anymore, thinking about how wonderful it was to be with her. That's not only time, but like psychic energy, emotional availability that could be going towards the woman that I'm with, and so to me, that's a compromise. It's not a moral position that says you are being unethical for hanging on to that picture, but for me, it's just like I, I, I want that energy to go to the relationship that I'm in, and that's and that's going to come back to me mm. in the form of
2: relationship that feels more alive. Yeah, mm. I would never try to convince my wife. Or anyone else, they need to get rid of anything, right? Especially something that they treat as a sentimental item, right? However, here's a boundary that I would set up, and you can take it to its terminus. So I'm going to give you a obscene parodic example here. This is such hyperbole, but like, let's say that Bex was holding on to a box of. Used condoms. I knew you were going there. <laughs> I don't know why, but I knew he was going I, here because we like, share a brain. Just like, he, just had, he just had to
6: do
4: that. All right. So, all right. So, let's talk about her hypothetical box <laughs> yeah. of used right, condoms. Right.
1: <laughs> that's, so, that's so weirdly specific, dude.
2: If she, it's it, my point is that if she I was, was holding, holding on to that, or if she was holding on. Here's a better metaphor. <laughs>
1: no, don't get better. Just <laughs> yeah. with this,
2: we, we've already done this. Let's, so, oh she, my god, she's. She, she had literally, she took stool samples from each boyfriend she's ever had. <laughs> now, why is this a metaphor? Right. Uh, because we often hold on to a lot of shit in our lives. Come on, <laughs> There we go. That <laughs> is not okay. adding any value. Yeah. Okay. And so we got this box of crap, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's stinking up the house. It, it is. And it's stinking up uh, my psychology, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to tell her to get rid of it. Yeah. I'm going to tell her how I feel about it, though. I'm going to say, hey, look, we're living together and this bothers me. I'm not going to ask you to get rid of it. But I'm also letting you know that I can't be around it. And at some point, I'm not going to, I don't give ultimatums either, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so I will walk away because this is not something I'm willing to tolerate. So you don't have to tolerate everything from your partner. There are going to be lines. If you tolerate everything, you will get dragged in a direction where there's a lot of crap that you don't want to have to deal with. Mm. We we were joking earlier about the beta-alpha
1: distinction that always gets tossed around in the manosphere. I do think that is one useful, albeit oversimplified thing to take away from some of those discussions, and that is you got to be assertive enough and self-respecting enough to not just tolerate anything that anyone throws at you. You can't be so desperate for love that you lose everything about you that makes you worthy of respect. Got to be honest about how you feel about things, for sure.
2: And that's not even love, right? There's all kinds of bromides I could throw in there. Like, I don't want to fall in love with you. I want to rise in love with you. And and as soon as you you think about it that way, because falling implies what? I'm out of control, right? But rising is like, no, no, no. I am in control of this. To love you is to see you for who you are. And I can witness that. And I can accept the fact that, yeah, okay, you have some letters from an old boyfriend or whatever. I don't know if Bex does or doesn't. I've never come across them, right? Mm -hmm. But if she did, I wouldn't care because I don't pretend that she's the one, right? The one doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. She happens to be a one that works really well for me. Now, not a one on a scale of one to 10. We don't do that, right? But what we're doing here is like, we're, we're always rounding up, as Dan Savage says. You don't want to find the one for you. You want to find the 0.64 and round that person up because no one is ever going to complete you, right? And how, how broken are we that we're told that we are incomplete and that the only way to complete ourselves is to find the perfect person, the perfect complement, the person or thing or activity, or career that will complete us. And yet we go to try to pursue it, we get it, and it never becomes everything for us. Because your lover can't also be your best friend, your business partner, your confidant, your sister, your aunt, your mother. We want them to play all these roles for us, but it doesn't work that way. You are already complete, and there are roles for all the people in your life. You get to determine what those roles are, and then they get to determine whether or not they want to be in that role. And if you ever succeeded at
1: playing all those roles for your lover, they'd uh, immediately uh, become bored with you and leave you for somebody that's interesting.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Through that. Let's let's, uh, check in with the live chat one more time. Shout out to our patrons. Thank you for keeping the podcast 100% advertisement free. Alabama, what else you got for us?
3: One more question from Lindsay with an A again. She says, I love listening to Dave Ramsey, but I'm a little terrified of getting rid of my credit score. Why am I so emotionally attached to having a credit score?
4: Because you're conditioned. You are conditioned to have a credit score. I mean, it's something that people literally compare. There are literal commercials that are like, if your credit score is this, that's bad. And we can help you to get it to this. I mean, a lot of it has to do with conditioning. And look, um, argument I hear a lot is, uh, well, you got to have a credit score to buy to, to buy a house. You got to have a credit score to have a mortgage. And I will say that it's easier. There's less friction to getting a mortgage without a credit score. However, it, 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 that's just not true. You can get a 30-year mortgage. God forbid you go for a 50-year mortgage. Holy moly. Yeah, don't do it. Yeah, don't do that. But like you can totally get a mortgage. It takes a little bit more legwork. You have to prove that you can truly afford this home and so forth and so on. But like, you know, the, the conditioning has us thinking that, oh, we can't buy a house without a credit score. So um, yeah, that's it, it's not true. We're being lied to. That credit score is a debt score. And once I've like learned that, I am... Yeah. And I got a great great credit score. Don't get me wrong, but like... Um, I wouldn't be scared for it to go to zero. Um, I haven't like made it my mission to make it become zero. I think Ramsey like out of pure principle and out of being a good example
2: of like, hey, I'm going to go out of my way to have a zero credit score. Yeah, um, well, it's like having an infinity credit score, right? Like, right. Because there there are sort of three options here. You can have a great credit score. Mm-hmm. You can have a terrible credit score, which is not what you want, and that's what people think zero must be a terrible credit score. That's like saying infinity is terrible well no it's not the same he just doesn't participate in that system right Mm -hmm. and so what day i have no idea what my credit score is by the way and i I bought a house this year i didn't need a credit score you know what i needed i needed to be able to prove that i could pay for the house Mm -hmm. because if i made ten thousand dollars a year Mm -hmm. and had an 800 credit score they're still not going to give me the mortgage for a house you have to be able to and the same is true with renting It's not about your credit score. It's about whether or not you can pay for that thing. The only time you need a credit score is when you plan on going into debt. And because I don't plan on going into debt besides my mortgage, which by the way, I still don't think that's good debt. I wanna pay that off as quickly as possible. But I don't need a credit score because I don't need to go into debt. I don't want to go into debt. I don't plan to go into debt. And so you can keep your credit score. I don't want it. You know, as someone who has helped hundreds of non-degree
1: holders get really good jobs in a society where most people believe you got to have a degree to get those types of jobs. I've truly come to understand the value of thinking about the why before you try to figure out the how. Why is that person looking to hire you? If you understand that, then you can negotiate the how of getting their attention, the how of getting them to hire you. But so many people play by these rules, right? They treat them like laws of nature. Well, I gotta have this, I gotta have that. And they never think about it from the perspective of the person who's demanding that. Most of these filters, you gotta have a credit score, you gotta have a degree, you gotta have all these things. Those filters are negotiable when you understand what people are trying to see. I think the reason that you're terrified about letting this go, however, is because there are two sides to the coin of letting go. There's what you're letting go of, and there's what you're embracing. There's what you're stepping away from. There's what you're stepping into. There's what you're free from. There's what you're free for. There's what you're saying no to. There's what you're saying yes to. And if you don't educate yourself about what the options are on that other side, you're going to experience letting go, saying no, liberating yourself from something as nothing more than a loss because you don't have a vocabulary for the benefit. So I would take the time to... Listen to the likes of Ramsey a little bit deeper to build a vocabulary for what it is they do to obtain the things that credit scores are allegedly necessary for so that you can build your confidence and your capacity to do those same things. Makes it much
4: easier to let go. Man, took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) 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 Uh, No, that's, that's great, man.
2: I love it. Y'all have me to blame or thank for this extra time. (laughs) All right, y'all, back to the public episode real quick, the minimal episode. we just spent nearly three hours going through budgeting tips and new decluttering rules. But uh, real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. This is before we get to our added value segment, which our added value segment, I'm getting super practical in a moment. But first, right here, right now, did you know that the minimalists have a bunch of free resources? And I mean free, free resources. Just go to the minimalists.com. And at the top, there's a little button there that says resources. It's a resources page. You can download our minimalist rule book. It's 16 rules for living with less. It's a free ebook. We have a free 30 day minimalism game calendar. You can download, you can print that out. And it shows you how many items it keeps track of how many items you've gotten rid of throughout the month. We've got seven free minimalist wallpapers. So the five questions to ask before buying, we've got a less is now wallpaper. We've got a minimalist wallpaper, several others. You can download all those for free for your smartphone or for your desktop. Nice little reminders to simplify, declutter your devices as well. We've got the 15 ways to write better. It's a free ebook. At the free values worksheet over there as well. If you want to get clear on who you are, it's about getting clear on what you actually value as a person. What are your foundational values? What are your structural values? What are your surface values? And worst of all, what are your imaginary values? What values are getting in the way? You can download that values worksheet and everything else I talked about there. Theminimalists.com. Just click the resources tab at the top of the page. For our added value segment this week, Jordan, let's throw this up on the screen. This is, well, when I moved earlier this year, Ryan, you and I were hanging out, me and you and podcast, Sean, we went to a coffee shop in Hollywood Mm -hmm. called Sight Glass. Yeah. And I realized like they had these little paper towel dispensers. They didn't have this one. But then I noticed that when I'm at home, there are two things I hate about paper towel dispensers. Well, at least two, maybe more than that. First, it's on the counter. It kind of looks ugly. You put your paper towels on the counter. We all know that it's not aesthetically pleasing, Mm. really, right? Mm. It's fine. It's not hideous, but it's not great. But the second thing is when you have them on a on a roll you're putting your wet, dirty hands on top and trying to pull the paper towel. Ta- you know what I'm talking about, right? Ryan's got wet, dirty hands. Oh, yeah. they're so dirty. <laughs> your hands
4: I love that you kn- clean. I love that you know, Rose over paper towel holders. I, it, it's like, I I also, I'm glad I don't, but I, the piece of me really wishes I like could pay attention like this to things. But yeah, you're right. I got wet, dirty paper towels. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm talking about your wet, dirty hands, Ryan.
2: <laughs> they're so don't wet. Don't you kink shame me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I noticed is I use too many paper towels when they're on the roll. And so I went ahead and bought this. It's This is not an ad, obviously. Torque Express Countertop Multifold Hand Towel Dispenser. Mm. I bought this for my kitchen at home. And two things happened. One is whenever I need a paper towel, I can just simply grab one. Mm-hmm. It's not ripping a bunch off. I don't have to touch a bunch of things. I just grab one paper towel. Yeah. And yes, I use paper towels occasionally. But what I'm using now, I'm using far fewer paper towels as a result, which mm. is not something I expect. So this thing is adding value to my life because when I do need a paper towel in the rare instance that I do, I'm not taking five or 10 or whatever. I'm just taking the one little sheet that I need. I use it. I get rid of it. There's no mess. And so this one thing in my life has not only reduced my overall consumption, but it's made the experience much better. It looks so much better on my countertop. Mm. And it feels so much better in my life. So we'll put a link to this one in the show notes for anyone who, is, uh, who might be interested.
1: No, we're not gonna put a link. I want the company that makes these to call me for a sponsorship then we'll post the link otherwise <laughs> everybody's got to figure out where to find it on oh their own
2: oh my goodness yeah we don't get paid for advertisements <laughs> you know know tk I mean? does <laughs> <laughs> not a chance as we uh, said earlier on shoot. as we said earlier on the private podcast i don't like the taste of leather so i'm not licking anyone's boots mm. especially torque express countertop multi-fold <laughs> <hand> towel dispenser <laughs>
1: Man. I'm just trying to get you paid for what you're already doing. That's anyway. so good. This non-boot-licking
2: <laughs> segment is brought to you by... Great. Hey, man, they ain't pay me a damn thing to talk about it. Of course not. It. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just irony. Everything we do is ironic, I Josh. won't lick your boots, but I'll sell them for you. <laughs> 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 that's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time.
0: Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing
1: that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you will be fine without it